0: It's movie time. Hello, hello. Welcome back, everybody. It's the movie time podcast from your Pop Zara pals over at Pop Zara Press. A lot of peas because we aim to please. That was lame. This is Nathan Evans, managing editor of said lame website, popzara.com, and back once again to talk about movies and all types. And because I will go horse talking to myself, we have a co host. He's in the background. He chuckles. Ethan Brem. Welcome back.
1: Hey, that's me. I'm
0: he, nobody's fool. <laughs> I'm nobody's fool. Hey, wait, wait wait, If you listened this far, you've probably heard the intro thing, and it sounded a little staticky. Um, usually on this podcast, we talk about a bunch of movies, and we like to pull in clips, but I think, Ethan, a, a different approach this time is that I think the two films that we're going to talk about are kind of clip-proof, mm-hmm. to some respect. Um, we're going to be talking about two films that may not seem like they have a lot in common, or they may seem like they have everything in common. It's going to be really hard to explain. What are the two? And I know I chose kind of it, but I'm going to put the impetus on you to explain what they are.
1: So we got Nobody's Fool from 1994, uh, directed by Robert Benton. And then we have uh, this year's Oscar-nominated The Holdovers, directed by Alexander Payne, uh, both about uh, somewhat curmudgeonly, lonely curmudgeonly older men um, trying to figure out life despite their age and years of wisdom I think and I would way to
0: put it. I would say the first the first most apparent most glaring similarity between the two is that I think both of these movies would be what people used to call Oscar bait and I yeah. think and I think uh, for a movie that's 30 plus years now nobody actually 2000 I mean 1994 that would be 30 yeah, years 30. now exactly yeah there we go it was nominated for Oscars. Uh, it was directed by a man who's no stranger to winning Oscars. Um, you know, Robert Benton won many. Won a Best Picture Oscar before this, too. Uh, helped Sally Field, by the way. You know the infamous Sally Field? You like me? Is that Norm No. Uh, what was the movie he did called? Oh, goodness gracious. It's a movie.
1: Lady Cra- Kramer vs. Kramer.
0: He did Kramer vs. Kramer. Uh, it was Places in the Heart with Sally Field. Hmm. And she won, I believe she won Best Actress for that. And that's her famous, you love me, you, or you like me, you really like me speech. You really
1: like me, yeah. Yeah,
0: that's where it's from. And
1: I didn't realize he wrote, he co-wrote um, Bonnie Super- and Clyde.
0: And Superman.
1: Oh, did, oh, I, did, I missed that one.
0: Yeah, like cool. I said, he's, he, Robert Benton's all over the place. <laughs> like, he's he's yeah. pretty good. And he's in really good company. I'll be honest with you. When we talked about pairing these films... And you asked me what I wanted to pair with. I gave you at least one other option, which we can talk about, which it's going to sound obvious when I say it. I really wanted to talk about 2003's American Splendor. And the obvious thing was, of course, that it was with Paul Giamatti. And I think you rightfully chose Nobody's Fool, because I think two Giamattis in the same podcast would have been too much.
1: Too much. So, too many Giamattis. Too,
0: may, too um, many Giamattis.
1: Well, I've never seen. I had never seen Nobody's Fool or American Splendor, and just from reading the description of Nobody's Fool, I, I thought it would be an interesting compare. I mean, we liked on this podcast. We like to compare movies that seem totally different on the surface, but are yeah. have a lot of similarities yeah. and contrast, And I think that's kind of one of our calling cards here. So mm-hmm. I thought that it was kind of a fun pairing. So that's why I went with that.
0: And to be honest with you, let's be honest. Uh, Nobody's Fool is kind of a film that has been forgotten. And,
1: oh, yeah, totally. I, I'd, had, I'd seen the poster. I, I think I can, like, uh, you know, that shot of Paul Newman, but I had never heard anybody, anybody, I can't recall anybody ever referencing this movie.
0: No, and and the reason I think it, uh, there's very subtle ways this movie connects with holdovers, which I'll get to. Um, by the way, spoiler, I have mentioned Nobody's Fool on this podcast before, mm-hmm. and I mentioned it very specifically in regards to a killer Santa film, that we talked and I... And oh, I,
1: yeah, that's right. I couldn't remember yes. what your reference was. Yes. That's what it was. and
0: yeah. what it was, and by the way, it does for the holdovers, is that I think Nobody's Fool may have the de- the best depiction of snow that I've ever seen so in good. a film. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, we're, we're talking about snow. We're talking about snow porn here. Like if, yeah. <laughs> if you like looking at snow and slush and slosh and all that, you I don't think you can find a movie that's better. Yeah. like It's, it's totally it's authentic. Cur-
1: it, it's courier and Ives incarnate, I think. It's so good. It's the reason why you come, but I think the movie itself is the reason why you stick well, around.
0: And I'll say this, the poster. Can we tell you this, the poster? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a picture of Paul Newman. It's a picture of yeah. Paul Newman's face looking to the side as his character Sully. And there's something very iconic because I think – and this is going to sound – you're going to laugh when I say this – when we think of Paul Newman now, we kind of think of him, his face on like mayonnaise bottles, yeah, and salad dressing, and that's that's a good noble that's a good noble thing that that money goes to animal uh, you know animal revenge and cruelty and all this, but nobody's fooled. This is a poster that's kind of epic. It's very stoic, and it's it very representative of the film, and I don't think. Um, that's very attractive to a lot of people. I don't think people look at this poster that they're, th- they're going to think action oriented film. So.
1: Yeah. And, and around this time, too, is when he was kind of like. Um... He kind of began his back nine of his racing career, and I think to me, that's what that's what I think of. when I see old Paul Newman, I think of like the pictures of him, you know, behind the wheel of the car, you know, at these racing events. That's what I think of because I I know mm-hmm. Paul Newman from The Sting and from Cool Hand Luke and stuff, and I grew The Sting was like mm-hmm. the first classic movie I ever saw besides Wizard of Oz. Oh. Uh,
0: how about maybe we should tell pe- ask people uh, describe Paul Newman for a little bit because this is another reason I want to talk about this. Um, This will become more clear later that when we're talking about Alexander Payne's The Holdovers, a lot of the buzz around it isn't just Paul Giamatti and how good of a performance he gives, but Mm -hmm. everyone's talking about how much it looks like a 70s film and how much it looks like a throwback and how, you know, there was a a famous story from Variety they talked about, they experimented with film stock from the 70s and they, they wanted to be, you know, he was trying to pull a Tarantino. Can we say that? Yeah. Like and it was it
1: was filmed in, it was filmed digitally, digitally. I believe but yep. they added
0: the scuffs and stuff Yeah. Right? I actually saw Holdovers in the theater. Um oh, That's cool. Like back in November and when I saw it I thought I was in I, I was in a very interesting theater in Kansas City that actually um you know it's a specialty theater but it's the kind of theater that I think what's the theater in California that uh Quentin Tarantino owns? Uh,
1: he, the New Beverly.
0: Yeah. And you remember like I felt like this is definitely a theater that's in the mode of that. And okay, so yeah when i saw the coming previews it's it's very much 70s driven it's you know film stock with grains on it and digital noise um, the intro music that i played is actually from the opening to the holdovers. it's very intentionally 1970s but it's scratchy film it's 70s disco music and
1: and it's set in the 70s as well it's very much 1970, set in 70 i believe right
0: yeah 1970 or 71 and you know, for some people, that's a throwback. And for some people, that's sort of a cliche. And we can we can get into that when we talk about the holdovers. But mm-hmm. when you think of the 70s, Paul Newman was a megastar. Can we just yeah. say that? He was, like, people don't understand today, like, the only interaction a lot of millennials and a lot of younger people have with Paul Newman is that he was the grumpy car in Cars. <laughs> and Yeah, Doc. And Doc. But he, but how... I was trying to find out how I'd explain them. So let me tell you how I would explain them, and then you tell me what you would do. Um, yeah. Paul Newman is a different type of movie star. Um, we don't really have them anymore, like Paul Newman. Paul Newman was someone that I think if you smushed the likability of Tom Hanks in with the, mm. the handsomeness of Brad Pitt, yep. then you'd, you'd get close. and yeah. but Beloved. And, and be- beloved on a level that is un unseen today like yeah. um, when he was in the towering inferno his b- him being in that movie with um oh uh, what's the other guy's name uh, goodness Steve gracious McQueen. Steve McQueen was like was a big deal like that was the special effect not yeah. the not the dummy they <laughs> threw out of the hotel room
1: yeah that was a, I mean, that's a big deal because those two guys were kind of like you know rivals. unofficial rivals yep um, not maybe not even unofficial but yeah, that, yeah definitely two different types of actors for sure but um, yeah that's cool
0: well, and, you know, you look at this and, and Newman had had sort of a mini comeback. Like he had had an interesting 70s, but mm-hmm. he had just won the Academy Award for the Martin Scorsese movie, the, uh, the color of, you know, the color of money. You
1: know, yeah, the, the Hustler sequel.
0: Yeah, the Hustler sequel with him and Tom Cruise. And that's what I wanted to bring up real quick. This is going to blow your mind. Everybody likes to talk about the um, the Wilford Brimley effect. Like they like to compare Wilford Brimley when he was in Cocoon, his age. Versus the age oh, of yeah. like Tom Cruise when Tom Cruise made Mission Impossible because Wilfred Brimley looked like he was like I hate to say this is gonna I look I'm going to hell for saying this he could he could he could reasonably play an 80 year old man at 49 yeah. like they paired him with Jessica Tandy you know and yeah. <laughs> by the way which we'll get into Jessica Tandy later um, <laughs> but Wilford Brimley could could reasonably play a very aged senior man when he was like my age. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, you know, that's his personality. So when when Paul Newman made Nobody's Fool, Ethan, he was considered older. He's playing a grandfather who's, who has a disability, and he's very much old. That's his character. Yeah. Last year, Mission Impossible, right, Dead Reckoning Part 1 came out with Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. Tom Cruise is the same age as Paul Newman in this movie. Jeez. Think about that for a second. Yeah.
1: Well, it's like I always think of my references. The dad from Frasier was like fifty when that show started, which is insane to me.
0: Yeah, that's when you know you're getting older is when yeah. you're starting to approach the age of the of the old dads. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. are you Homer Simpson age yet? Like thirty nine. Is that
1: is that what Homer Simpson? Yeah, th- is? 39? like
0: 39 or thirty nine or 39 i I'm not quite thirty nine. No. Yeah, and it's just. But let, I mean, but you see what I'm saying, though. We need a new metric yeah. because we can't just use the Wilford Brimley because in this movie – by the way, Paul Newman and Tom Cruise in the same movie together. Like I said, color, uh, mm-hmm. color of Money. But no, it's – one is playing an old grandfather and the other one is playing an action star destroying uh, an a-, a killer AI. Yeah. It just – yeah. Someone – see, again, it's more proof that Tom Cruise has a monkey's paw inside of his, um, inside of his mansion.
1: You very well, might yeah,
0: or a genius. I wouldn't land. put it past him. But eventually, you know, it's going to happen. Like, but uh, but no. Let's so let's let's get into it real quick. So I'm going to let you start off a little bit because you're new to this film, and yeah. I I revisit this film like every ten years. Um, I'm going to give you my opinion after you give me yours because I want to okay. see I want to see where you feel. I don't want to prejudice you. So tell tell us. Let's give a little synopsis of what Nobody's Fool is.
1: Paul Newman stars as Donald Sullivan, um, AKA Sully, uh, who he's a very much a, a lone wolf, but he has a, a group of friends. Um, he works, I think, believe for like a construction company, um, owned by Bruce Willis. hmm And one day his estranged son comes to town with his family and he discovers that, um, he lives in a small, uh, like upstate New York town, by the way, uh, Bath. Mm-hmm. And uh he discovers that his son is going is in the middle of uh, a looming divorce. He has two sons of his own, and Paul Newman was never around when 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 his son was was a kid, and so now he's kind of taking it upon himself to um you know reconcile a little bit and be there for his one of his uh grandsons so um, let's, that's pretty much the whole i mean so, the, that's pretty much the whole movie
0: so let's let's stop right there. If you describe that to someone, you can see this movie in your head. Like, you can yeah. see the formula that this movie could have been. Like, mm-hmm. curmudgeon grandpa, you know, yeah. curmudgeon grandpa, cast of ensemble characters, has to learn to reconcile being a grandpa and the whole culture clash, right?
1: Yeah, okay, so if this yeah. were made now, it would be, you know, or maybe not now, but 10 years ago, mm-hmm. be Clint Eastwood, he'd be, you know, kind of racist, maybe... He'd be, be you know, Gran Torino. Yeah. Uh, like, I'm just imagining this. And by the way, um, I love Paul Newman. I've never really watched him, I don't think, in as an old man in, in a movie, like in the 90s. He's I don't a, think I've seen any of his 90s he is, movies. He is
0: a great old man actor.
1: He's a great old man actor. He's like... Uh, like Maybe the uh, best, this is actually. A, this is a crude comparison, but, I, you know, like Michael Caine, how, you know, I mean, Michael Caine has not missed a beat as an old man, like... Kind of like that, where he's he's leaning on his own instincts. He's not acting. He's not doing. I watch Robert Redford and stuff as an old guy, and I'm like, man, he's using tricks. He's using um, you know technique, and it's very yeah. obvious. He's trying to do things with his face. He's trying to manipulate himself. Whereas whereas Paul Newman is all natural here, and he's leaning on the script. He's letting the script kind of take him, uh, and he's leaning on probably leaning well, on direction a lot, which is I, really I, mature for a dude who's been in it. They, for...
0: They have made this movie years. recently. It was called A Man Called Otto with Tom, Tom oh, Hanks. Oh, yeah. And That's right. And to be honest with you, Tom Hanks didn't do a great job with it. I don't know if you saw it, but it was very – it was very. You know, I, it was very yeah. there was something off with it. Like he just – he can't he, – it's too much against type for him playing a, a curmudgeon.
1: I will say I love Tom Hanks. Um, I do. I, I think, do too. I think he's a great – I think he's had, he's had some of the best performances we've seen of the last 30 years. But I think he is as as an older man now. I think we are seeing some of his limitations. I think old man Tom Hanks is not going to be as talented as young. Man well, he's Tom Hanks.
0: he's he is Jimmy Stewart, and Jimmy Stewart had issues. Ooh, yeah. had issues resolving that too as he got older. Yeah, good. Yeah, and, good take. Well, think about this. You mentioned Clint Eastwood. That's I was thinking about that too. Like in my mind, I was I I was recasting this in my mind because let's be honest, this is a Paul Newman film. Without Paul Newman, this movie is forgotten. Can I say mm-hmm. that? It is forgotten. I love Jessica Tandy. I love Bruce Willis, and I love Millie Griffith. I, I Especially, love. this is the best movie she's ever been in. But I will say yes. this, and, and not for the reasons you think I'm, you pervert, stop it. But, no. <laughs> but, but what I mean is, this is a Paul Newman piece. This is the rare film, and I wrote in my notes, this is the rare film that is both an actor showcase and a great ensemble film. Like the entire mm-hmm. ensemble cast, like Philip Seymour Hoffman's in this, right? Lots of little fun character actors, and they're all interacting, and they're all, everyone gets their own beats. Everyone gets great Jessica Tandy, her last film, but without Paul yeah. Newman, there is no film. And it's a
1: Michael Jordan team.
0: Yeah, kind of. Exactly. It's like yeah. we're all here to support you. You know, you you cannot be the star without us supporting you. However, you you know, but at the same point, you can't be the star without us supporting you. It's all about nuance. It's how you say it. And, um, but you said Clint Eastwood and I th- I thought to myself, Clint Eastwood might have been the only other person of that age and vintage and that sort of, you know, requisite stock that could have played the role, but it would have been a vastly, vastly different movie. He would not have been charming. And, like, oh man.
1: Yeah. Yeah. How, how is somebody this good looking still when they're 60 something crazy, but
0: that's the thing though. That's the thing. Yeah. That's the thing. That's really the part that I think some people have problems with. Is that Sully is handsome, mm-hmm. and he's he's handsome at any age. And in this, there's a scene later on when you know there, he's joking with the Melanie Griffith character, and they're joking about running away and running away, and it's very cute, but it's more it's harmless. It's it's asexual because how on earth would that ever happen? But the way he treats her, and the way she's treated by her Bruce Willis, her husband, and the way the world treats these people, at you know. No spoilers here. If you if you don't want the movie spoiled, turn off now. But there's a scene towards the end, you know what I'm talking about, when it might happen and yeah. Melanie Griffith takes it seriously, and then Paul Newman grows up. You know, Sully grows up and he realizes he's too old for her. And she'll find someone else. But you believe that he could have seduced her. Not oh yeah. Because he's Paul Friggin yep. Newman.
1: Exactly. It's believable. Any other yep. movie, it would have been like kinda gross or something um but yeah you're like wow like he might act, like he could end up right now and i'd believe it mm-hmm. with melanie Griffith. yeah yeah
0: but if it was but if it was someone homely yeah you know but you know going back to that uh, tom hanks comparison like do you remember the movie that tom hanks was in with paul newman before he passed away it was um uh what was the film made by oh goodness gracious was it sam mendes uh the assassin movie you know what i'm talking about
1: oh uh tra- uh no I was going to say Charlie Wilson's War, but no, it's. Um...
0: Charlie Wilson's War? No, you... <laughs>
1: that's Spielberg, I think, right?
0: What are you talking about?
1: Wait, what was the. Uh, it was like 05, maybe? I know which movie you're talking about.
0: 2002, I think, actually.
1: Oh, it was earlier than that.
0: Oh, goodness. Uh, Road to Perdition, sorry. Road to oh, Perdition. Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, yeah. I actually like that movie quite a bit. Um, there is a fantastic scene in that film with Tom Hanks because he plays the you know let's just say the son of the Paul Newman character, and they're sitting at the piano together and they're playing the piano together and Paul Newman just looks at him, and you realize you're seeing you're, you're seeing these two great actors be great together in the same scene, and that's that's kind of the reason I wanted to do Nobody's Fool is because we're talking about a film that has a perfunctory story that has a perfunctory cast that everything about it is just fine. But you have a showpiece that is anchored by a sensationally, like probably never better classic actor that was a megastar from the 70s and the 60s. And, and when I kept reading reviews about it now, contemporary reviews or older reviews, even at the time, Ethan, they would say, oh, they don't make movies like this anymore. This is a dying mm-hmm. breed. This, you know, They're lamenting the fact that more movies like Nobody's Fool weren't being made. And when I read reviews of The Holdovers... People are talking about how it's like a movie from that era, so you have different ends of the spectrum here. Yeah. So and, and
1: I loved, I loved that it was not like the whole movie. I was expecting the thing to happen, like you know, a suicide or mm-hmm. a car accident or you know, some a major dying Manipu- or major, something. Yeah. yeah like a a melodrama, but this stayed on drama the whole time, not melodrama, but drama. It was all realistic. It was all felt like, you know, slice of life almost. Yeah. Nothing like that happened. There was one, you know, the only thing that does happen was with Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. He shoots, he fires a gun and then, (laughs) and then uh, Paul Newman punches him in the face. Like, okay. Like, you know, court date, whatever it ends there. And the one character who dies, you don't see her die. And she's like incredibly minor. She has like one line in the movie and and you don't see just see the funeral you don't watch your die it's not a it's not played for drama well everything here is like completely almost for lack of a better term expected but mm -hmm. um but you don't feel manipulated by the script and the script is really good this is a script this is a a screenwriter's script by Mm -hmm. the way like if you want to learn really good classic writing like this is a great example
0: well i'll tell you what though Robert Benton has been nominated, and he's won many Oscars for screenwriting. He was nominated for this film for screenwriting, mm-hmm. um, but he had good help. Um, for the, those who don't know, we could easily do an entire podcast on the, on the man who wrote the book this was based off of. Um, his name is Richard Russo, by the way. No relation to Renee. <laughs> so, uh-huh. uh, yeah, Richard Russo is one of the finest novelists in English literature in the last hundred years. And he is such an interesting, interesting, interesting man who actually had a couple things uh, – th- something come out last year. He had two projects last year, including a second sequel to Nobody's Fool, which came out last year in oh. the book. Okay. Um, he had a TV show that unfortunately was canceled. It was based on one of his books, um, Straight Man, which came out like in 1997. Um, the It was a TV show called Lucky Hank starring um, Paul Odenkirk uh, – Bob Odenkirk, okay. sorry. It was uh, canceled. Yeah. But, no, he's, he's been involved in, – and Paul Newman's been involved with Richard Russo Productions as well. Um, Richard Russo won the Pulitzer Prize for a book called Empire Falls in the early 2000s. Hmm. There was a TV um, miniseries made on HBO with it, which Paul Newman was in, by the way. And I'll just say this. I don't want to get too much into it because I'm, we're going to lose people if we talk about books. I'll just be honest with you. And if you're listening to this and we start talking about books, I, I get it. You're out. But I'll say this. He is a fantastic writer. And, he, and he's written essays about this before where – this is very interesting – where he basically lamented the fact that he realized his gift was writing about small towns and about myriad of characters. And one of the characters in his books was an old curmudgeon uh, professor who spent his entire career – trying to demystify Charles Dickens and basically say Charles Dickens was overrated. He bait, you know, he was lamented by li- the literati. They all, oh, of course, Charles Dickens overrated. You know, why is he so popular, overrated? And on his deathbed, he basically said, you know what, I started reading Charles Dickens again and I, I get it now. I, th- I see why people loved him. Mm-hmm. And he passes away. And if you think about it, that's what Nobody's Fool is and that's what a lot of uh, Richard Russo's books are. They're basically Shakespearean you know you you have this location that is populated by these deeply rich very interesting characters that are flawed in every way you can imagine but yet they're relatable and have you ever read anything by richard russo and if you haven't like no. yeah I, it, I'm I not i don't meet very many people who have but that's just books in general you know that yeah how many people read honestly how many people read novels anymore yeah i know right it's just i mean it is what it is it's, it's it's more niche now than than ever but if you read nobody's fool a lot of the the dialogue is lifted from the book oh
1: yeah okay
0: yeah he is a sensationally literate person he is an incredibly great at dialogue and can i be on like i think you would agree with this part of the fun of this film is just watching the characters talk with each other mm-hmm. and hearing their their interplay <laughs> like they have internal lives like there's there's history between these characters these, these are not characters who have met each other the first time yeah they come with baggage like you're you're you know you're peeking into something into a relationship that's that's pre-existing
1: and so- all the depth is established through the relationships it's not like long diatribes necessarily or anything like that it's all about how this person and this person interact and and treat each other and I mean one of the best examples is Sully and Bruce Willis's character who obviously Bruce Willis is you know he's the villain but he's he doesn't really behave like the villain all the time like he's not even treated like he's the villain all the time by our protagonist like he's he sleeps on his couch in one scene uh, Bruce Willis sleeps on Paul Newman's couch in one scene and it's like this whole. Um, this whole picture that's being stippled mm-hmm. instead of broad strokes—it's—it's—it's it's, it's little things here, little things there, and they amount to one big portrait. And um, that's why it's so—it's so, it's <laughs> so the, yeah, there's literally pe- people don't make movies like this anymore, and if they do, it, you can kind of see the seams a little bit better.
0: Well, you know, we we talked about you, you talked about the uh, the love hate relationship he has with Bruce Willis's character. You know, there's a whole subplot about a snowplow, right?
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and.
0: So Sully, Sully thinks he, uh, he's owed money by the Bruce Willis character. And so they have this cantankerous relationship. And the Bruce Willis character realizes he has Sully by the balls. Sully's injured. He's older. He has trouble finding work. You know, he's, his disability his disability requests keep getting denied. And so Bruce Willis can take advantage of him. And so what does Sully do? He steals his snowplow, his snowblower. <laughs> and Bruce Willis knows this. And instead of calling the police, they just play it sort of for, yeah. for yucks. And it just goes yeah. back and forth, and it's an ongoing thing. And you realize that these characters are cantankerous with each other, but they're not hostile towards each other in a yeah, way they, yeah, that it's... you think, like they should be. Like, like he's cheating on the Melanie Griffith character, and she's, you know, obviously she's tormented by this and she's saddened by this. But she gives as good as she gets, yeah. and it's 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 an interesting dynamic. But one one criticism though, one criticism before we we move on with this. Is that Sully is presented as the glue that holds his group together. Can we say this? Mm-hmm. Like Sully is shown as a lazeabout. Like we're supposed to believe that this sixty-year-old man made a lot of mistakes and now he's living with his second grade teacher as a tenant. He has a you know, he has a ban- he has banter with her every day, Jessica Tandy. And he goes out and he has trouble finding work because his knee is, is handicapped. Um his best friend is probably mentally deficient a little bit, his yeah. coworker. Um but you but he left his family. He left his wife and his son. Right? And he mm-hmm. wasn't part of their lives. So something happened. Like he he made mistakes. And I think the, the genius of the film is that it doesn't portray him as a saint. Like I think it could. I yeah. think it could portray him as a saint, like, oh, Sully's so given wisdom. But he's haunted by his past. And I guarantee, and let me just say this. <laughs> The book does go into detail, and this is, this is my criticism. This is my biggest criticism of the film. This is why I wanted you to tell me what you thought first. I like Nobody's Fool. I enjoy it. I think it's beautifully made, beautifully directed, gorgeous, well-acted. I don't have a flaw with it except for one thing. When we say they don't make movies like this anymore, there's, mm-hmm. there is one thing. I, I want to get your thoughts on this. Remember Prestige Films? You know, not just Merchant Ivory films, but like films that were based on novels. When novels would get adaptations, and they would be celebrated. Like talking uh, so about
1: like in the thirties and forties,
0: even the eighties. You know, there was a okay, certain yeah, a yeah. certain type of film, like people call them chick flicks, because let's be like honest, the mo- English patient, English patient. I was gonna say, I was yeah. gonna say it based on a That's novel. That's
1: like the go-to.
0: Sh- yeah. Yep, lot like literate movies that yeah. that had their genesis in a book translated to the screen made for a very specific audience that was produ- you know predominantly female date films because women read books more than men they do by the way look it up and mm-hmm. they can appreciate the nuance of everything but when they go in if they don't have that knowledge of the book right then you may not understand all the characters and so the the person who's a fan of the book is there to explain it for you oh well she she's got Alzheimer's so she doesn't she works at the thing <laughs> But you don't really understand all of that by watching the movie. Yeah. You get like cliff note. The movie is cliff notes version of the book in some cases, right? Yeah. Is that that Is that what you think is like? I mean, I like. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, like I said though, but it it in in a bad movie, it's a problem. In a bad yeah, yeah, in yeah. a bad adaptation, and I don't think I think Nobody's Fool is better than that. I think it does an insanely good job of distilling what made the book yeah. successful. Um, and i and i will say this if you watch nobody's fool Ethan, and you really like it and you want more of this read the book it's pretty good like yeah, it's actually well, pretty
1: good I, well and i like i like the little things too like i like i said stippling
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: for instance um it says a lot about sully's character in this in the gesture of him <laughs> you know he steals the snowplow and then he gives it To um, the man who raised his son, his uh, his son's stepdad, you know, and (laughs) and, and just how he treats the stepdad. It's it's like he isn't he it's all of these things. He acknowledges that he's that it was his fault that he left. He acknowledges that this man was better for, you know, taking on some taking upon himself to raise somebody else's child. Um, And making him his own and, like, making him a good guy. Like, his son is, is, for all intents and purposes, like, a good person. Like, we see that. Um, And, like, he shows his appreciation and and all this thing. And it's all just with little gestures like that. And, like, the relationship between him and that guy. And they don't have a long conversation. They honestly don't even have anything more than, like, cursory, uh, you know, small talk. But it's just that kind of stuff. And, and, um, and, like, so for me, like... I don't know if that was expanded on in the in the book or not, but um, I love that it was just so brief like that. I love yes. the brevity. I love how everything is just like touched upon because touched it's upon a and...
0: it's a it's a film that's well made and it gets yeah. it gets it gets the emotion that you're talking about made through the cinematography and the acting. Oh yeah,
1: and 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 that's the thing too that like um, obviously Benton had help from Russo, but mm-hmm. it's it's you know uh, ex- what he excluded. I think really helps um, make the movie more effective. And it's like, it reminds me a lot of, and this sounds funny. It reminds me of Winnie the Pooh, like the mini adventures of Winnie the Pooh. And just, well, a, in terms of kind of how relaxed and at ease it is with its pace and nothing crazy happens and all this stuff. But just also in terms of like, does not really uh, tell? Like it's not, it's very low concept. It's, it's very, um, like lazy in a sense you know uh, in in the most traditional sense of the word lazy you know just kind of like takes its time and um, I just really I, I, I really got Winnie the F- Winnie the pooh well, vibes with this movie. In,
0: in Japanese films right especially with like Japanese anime there's a there's a, a genre called slice of life mm-hmm. that's very popular and I think um, you not you know we talked uh, you were asking about a uh, I think it's um, the Japanese um, Film that they're nominating for best form picture, which is Monster, right? Yeah. And have you seen it yet? Oh, yeah, I saw it. Okay. Well, let's not turn this into a Monster podcast, although we could, right? It's I don't know what you thought of the film, but um, but I'll say this: the the director of that, his um, you know, his name is what Hirokazu Koreeda. He's mm-hmm. one of my favorite contemporary filmmakers because he, that's all he does. Like he does slice of life like sometimes yeah. there's plot sometimes there's not sometimes there's mood evocate eh, evocation sorry of that when you like there's no plot to this film would you agree like there's no like it, no no to, I'm sorry uh, nobody's, to, fool. nobody's fool.
1: nobody's fool nobody's fool yeah yeah there's no plot yeah exactly yeah, it's slice of life for yeah, sure yeah
0: you have we're we're witnessing a very specific time in Sully's life um we're only given what we're supposed to know and i'll, I'll say this a trademark of Rousseau's books is that he reveals as it progresses like mm-hmm. you don't know why this is the way it is until you see it you know you don't understand the motivation until you know it's it's all revealed which is a very naturalistic way but it's also it allows you to upend your con- your expectations like paul newman sully uh, is never played as a hero He's played as a yeah. he's played as a decent man who's very flawed. It's objective
1: it's objective almost. The, yeah. the, the interpretation of him. Yeah,
0: but you know, going back to Jessica Tandy for a second, like her character is is very much expanded in the film. But like, let's just say this before, real quick: Jessica Tandy, uh, this was her last film, and I know you didn't grow up. Um, no. During what we call the t- the <laughs> it's like like Matthew McConaughey's McConaissance. Uh uh-huh. But Jessica Tandy became a huge star in the eighties. In her eighties, <laughs> you yeah. know that's it just happened, right? And she was yeah. in a string of really good movies, including Best Picture winner Driving Miss Daisy. You know, Batteries Not Included, Cocoon. Yeah. Like Jessica Tandy was all over the place.
1: Yeah, that was probably that's probably her biggest movie, right? Is is uh, Driving Miss Daisy?
0: Um, see, that's the thing. It's a big. But, movie. Like,
1: like that's what she's become now. Like the most famous for, though, I think.
0: Yeah, and but you know, it's funny that a lot of people have compared. Like when we start talking about the holdovers, you'll understand. Like, yeah. people are starting to say, is the holdovers the new Green Book? Because Green mm. Book was another film that came out a couple of years ago. was very well received by, you know, audiences. Um, it was likable. But it was criticized not because of what it was, but because of what it wasn't. And people criticize now retroactively. They, you know, they criticize Driving Miss Daisy as a film that didn't, you know, say all the things it should have about class and, mm-hmm. and racism. And... You know that—that's the thing about these things, and which again we'll talk about. When we talk about the holdovers, but Jessica Tandy's just so likable; she's so good, Yeah. and you want to see more of her. But unfortunately, she was old when she became successful, and that's—that's that's the problem. You know,
1: yeah, yeah. So, she's great in this. Um, also, I, I will say Philip Seymour Hoffman is—I mm-hmm. love seeing him in early movies. I'm always in awe of how not famous he was uh, for so long before. You know, I think. Ugh, was it like Along Came Polly and Capote? Like they, those all kind of came out at the same time, and then people started really and, realizing. And that Mission and Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible, <laughs> like so. all. Yeah, that's true. But like, I mean, I think that's kind of when people started realizing how good. The, like he became a household name, I think, after Capote. But like before that, like the people who watched movies a lot knew who he was. You know, he was in Big Lebowski, obviously. Yeah, exactly. But like, well, he talented, was, Mr. Ripley. Well, he was always but,
0: he was always a very good um, very good character actor that you know, ascended to stardom, which is really rare. Yeah. You know, like, he doesn't have leading man good looks. He's not like that. He's more like, I hate to say it, he's kind of like Paul Giamatti a little bit. Yeah. where Kind of like
1: Gary Oldman, too, I would compare him yes. to. Yeah. Minus Gary, the archetypes, but yeah.
0: yeah. Gary, and, and accents. But uh, yeah. <laughs> it's always funny when you see people not realizing that Gary Oldman is English. and they Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. Um, I yeah. actually heard, heard a funny story about Gary Oldman the other day, about him and David Bowie. Um, apparently they were really good friends, and uh, Gary Oldman was talking about the last the last time he ever talked to David Bowie, and David Bowie's last words to him were "f off," but not because you think, because they were talking on Skype and Skype was messing up, and and Gary Oldman said, "Hey, I love you. I'll talk to you later," and David Bowie said, "Fuck off," and because the Skype was messing up, it had nothing to do it. Yeah, that's a that's, that's a story. Awesome. But um, that's awesome. <laughs> but uh, but no, I uh. But yeah, Philip Seymour Hoffman is always a joy when he pops up as a younger actor. Yeah, um, was he in? Uh, he was in that other film uh, goodness, with Happiness, right? As the <sighs> yeah, yeah. So like that movie is uh, that tough uh, to watch.
1: Yeah, he's done all kinds of stuff. I mean, he well, he really is a uh, was a character actor like you know Bishemi or like we said uh, okay. Gary Oldman. I mean, Bishemi's still I think at his best as a character actor. Um, but but I think Philip Seymour Hoffman made the jump really really well. You know, um, when he started doing, like when he started getting first build.
0: The truth is, is that I, I think we've always had these great character actors, but they've always been dwarfed by, and ironically, people like Paul Newman and Tom Cruise, like big movie yeah. stars. But as as the idea of the movie star has become obsolete, mm-hmm. character actors have been allowed to become, you know, ascendant, and that's been fantastic yeah. because literally, like, you know, they are. Playing a, playing a role in a movie that will not be sold on their acting. Like again, we'll we'll start getting into the holdovers here, but nobody's lining up to go see the holdovers because it's the new Paul Giamatti movie. You know, <laughs> I was I was thinking about this the other day because you know what movie was number one at the box office when we're recording this? Do you know what movie was number one at the box office this weekend after three weeks? No, the bee uh, is it the Beekeeper?
1: Oh, okay. Cool. Was
0: uh, Jason Statham? Is that what it mm-hmm. is? That, did yeah. I get that right? The beekeeper. The bee, yeah, some of the beekeeper. Yeah. right? yeah, yeah. It, it finally overtook uh, Mean Girls, the remake.
1: Oh, cool. And I thought I heard nice. that was good.
0: I, I haven't. Seen it. I haven't seen it. It's another one of those musicals where they didn't advertise it was a musical on purpose because they didn't okay. want people to stay away. Um, same with the Wonka movie, and same with um, the Color yeah. Purple. Like we're we're not going to tell you it's a musical. We're going to throw it at you. Yeah, don't do mm-hmm. that. Just say it's a musical. But um, they sing. Okay, the voices open and people shout. But um, through their face holes. But but Jason Statham. I was talking to our, our producer about this the other day. You know, Chris Mitchell. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jason Statham. It might be the most successful movie star in the world. Like if you think Besides about it. Tom him, Cruise. Well, even more so than Tom Cruise, because Tom Cruise only brings out massive, big budget films, right? But yeah. Jason Statham produces like these $15, 20 million dollar movies. For mm-hmm. eclectic directors, and they all make money. All of them, even the dumb ones. And yeah. and he's he's somehow avoided the VOD curse that everybody else has gotten into. Like, the Beekeeper is number one at the box office and it's made a lot of money. It's made like two hundred million dollars in the world. Like that's amazing. Like yeah. it's but like let Stallone used to do
1: that too. Like Stallone is really Oh good yeah. At
0: that. Well Arnold was like that, Stallone was like that, even <laughs> Van Damme to some extent. But yeah. like when you think about the Beekeeper or you think about whatever movie you don't say, "Oh, it's the beekeeper." I want to see the beekeeper. That plot sounds interesting. You say, "Hey, the new Jason Statham movie," and that's when mm-hmm. you know you're a movie star, yeah. right? Like, it's, not yeah,
1: movie. you've eclipsed the the actual movie itself.
0: Exactly. Now, if you make a good movie, then you stay a star. But if you make yeah. a bunch of turds, you don't. And so, yeah. and to some extent, I will say
1: Nicholas Cage is a little bit like that still because he, of who yes. he is.
0: Um, he's, he's returned to that a little, I think. Yeah. I think he's had a, a wonderful. I love it too. Come back. He's made some of the best stuff. Like you like dream, um,
1: dream, dream scenario.
0: scenario. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a great movie and he's yeah, great yeah. in it.
1: You um, know, the, what was the one he did with Pablo Pascal last year? The unbearable weight of massive he, talent. Yeah. He
0: played himself. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's a good one. Yeah.
0: <laughs> or, of course, pig, which was a lot of people's favorite movie of the year.
1: Oh yeah. You know? Most underappreciated, like the most snubbed movie in my opinion last year. Needed. It needed, or two years ago now, but um, it needed I'll, more love for sure. I'll
0: just say this. He's, he's won his Oscar, but, um, <laughs> but no, like Nicholas Cage is Nicolas Cage, but, um, yeah. but going back to this though, like we're talking about, when you talk about Paul Newman, and I think this might be a good place to sort of segue into the Holdovers is mm-hmm. that, you know, the Holdovers is a very different movie superficially. It has a, has a plot that is actually kind of threadbare and Again, I don't want to give you my opinion until I hear what you think because I kind of recommended it. But so let's talk about The Holdover. So The Holdover. So what's it, what's it all about?
1: Well, real quick as a transition, I when I was watching Nobody's Fool, it reminded me of Nebraska a lot. Um, oh, yeah. And not, and not even because we're talking about another Alexander Payne movie, literally just like the father-son stuff. Um, I, do film, I do love that town.
0: I do love Nebraska.
1: Yeah. Nebraska great. I don't know where they film Nebraska, um, but the small town in this movie reminded well, me a lot of the Nebraska um, town. I'll
0: say this Alexander Payne has deep roots with a, Omaha. <laughs> like, he owns a movie theater okay. out there. He's part of the community. Like, if you look him up, like, he's deeply embedded in Nebraska.
1: Okay. I didn't realize that. And
0: okay. Isn't it ironic that they film a movie called Nebraska in Nebraska? Yeah. Um, by the way, uh, plot for Nebraska, is that the one where. Uh, Dern, um, what's his name? Oh my god, uh, Bruce Dern. Er, Bruce Bruce Dern thinks he yeah. thinks he won a million dollars, but he has to, it's one. Yeah. Of, it's a scam, and he has to like.
1: And get, then Will Forte is his son. He doesn't. Yeah. Really, he's just telling them the whole time, like you didn't really win. Yeah.
0: Oh, and uh, and who plays the woman in that movie? Because um, she, I actually saw the craziest... June Squibb. Headline. I actually saw a headline the other day that some studio bought a June Squibb action epic. <laughs> And I thought to myself, no, (laughs) no, really. No, Uh, Gene Squibb is in an action film (laughs) where she has machine guns. I'm not joking
1: i i love nebraska she was not deserving of that oscar nomination though
0: no but she's june squibb
1: yeah so. she's june squibb though yeah so she's she fun. became a punchline after that a little she, bit she did,
0: she did a little bit but now she's gonna be in an action film maybe that's she could great be, maybe she could be with jason Statham.
1: the new june squibb jason Statham that's action so, epic
0: i saw that headline and i thought i was dreaming <laughs> i really did
1: so that's amazing no that's amazing um anyway so that's that was my transition to the holdovers because The Holdover is directed by Alexander Payne, um, is, uh, you know, Whoa. it's very Payne-esque.
0: Real, real quick, real quick. I found yeah. the headline. I found the headline on Variety. Oh, did, oh please. Yeah. June Squibb's action comedy, Thelma, sells to the Magnolia after Sundance premiere.
1: Oh, man. I action mean, comedy. Anything's possible. We're, we're in the age of the genreless movies.
0: Mm-hmm. The so.
1: strange, self-referential. <laughs> but that's that's awesome. I'll watch that. Okay. I'll watch that for sure. <laughs> Um, but I was going to say, yeah, The Holdovers is very much an Alexander Payne movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you've seen The Descendants, if you've seen Nebraska, um, The Sideways even. Um, uh, but,
0: but but I was going to say, that? I think Downsizing was sort of an outlier a little bit. Okay. I, can I say I that? Heard,
1: yeah, I heard such bad things about that. I didn't even end up watching it, and um, I wanted to.
0: It's not a but, bad film, but it's a film that promises what, something it does not deliver, and that's a, okay. that's a problem.
1: No, it's still one I want to watch I just it was at a time when I think I think my son had just been born and I, we were really being economic with our movie going um, so I didn't we didn't get to it but yeah that was um, that was one I did want to see um, but the descendants is I think the best comparison to this even mm-hmm. though it seems like it might be Nebraska but in the sense that um, what what Alex, what Alexander Payne does really well is presenting these really picturesque locations um such as like wine country oh, i was a past Robles wine country mm-hmm. or Dare, wherever it was um with these really kind of uh depressing storylines i mean not, this isn't as depressing as the descendants were george clooney finds out that his wife who just died was cheating on him um in hawaii but uh but the uh, the holdovers is, is about paul giamatti as a he he plays an english all right sorry a history teacher um was a history right
0: I think, so. yeah, a very specific history.
1: So yeah, and um, he's very much a, a, a lone, a lone wolf again. And he, but not because of necessarily decisions he made, but more, more just of who he is and his uh, natural tendencies. He's very, you know. I would say,
0: uh, I would say to risk spoiling, I would say you find out why he's in the position towards mm-hmm. the end of the film, and it's surprising a little bit.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, he, he showed a lot of promise, I guess, in college, and um, one thing or another, he ended up teaching at his boarding school that he went to as a kid. Mm-hmm. And the boarding school is made up of rich people's children, unless you get a scholarship like he had when he was a yeah, kid. Yeah, it's
0: like a hermit, but, it's a hermit. It's a feeder school into, like, Ivy League success. Exactly.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so he, in New is, he is super, yeah, in New England, and he's super resentful towards these rich kids because he was not one he probably you know there's a lot of sub subtext he probably got bullied he probably got made fun of. he has a lazy eye you know he has this disease where he smells bad fish um like fish and he you know and he's very pedantic and he's very um he's very really smart and he's you know antisocial in a sense. And so you get the idea that he was probably really made fun of as a kid and he hates these rich kids. So he's teaching them now. And so, you know, he kind of gets, he kind of is in a position of power over these children in a sense that he can make or break their success in college. And, you know, he can take a, kid whose parents are famous and rich and give them a bad grade and then they don't get to go to their dream college necessarily. Um, So there's a lot of that happening and and he gets over Christmas break, he um, gets assigned uh, the job of watching the people who don't get to get sent home. As punishment,
0: by the way. He gets the the job as punishment for for giving one of those privileged brats a bad grade.
1: Exactly. So it's essentially him uh five or six students and um the lunch lady whose son um whose son had just died in Vietnam and this is you know this is a total uh Vietnam era movie you get the the disillusionment all over the place from the adults and from the kids and like nobody knows the generation gap was never wider you get people you know what are we the what are we what are we fighting for mantra is just ringing in your head um as they're talking about it but the Vietnam is played as as again mere
0: it's a, um, it's, it's a background. It's a background event. Yeah, it's it's yeah. context
1: more than it is. It's never part of the plot necessarily. So you get a lot of it, it, this whole movie is just context and, and and relationships and how these people talk to each other and and how they kind of um, grow to like each other and respect each other. And well, that's the movie essentially, and it's filmed like a seventies movie by Ijil Brild, who was the DP on another movie I watched last week called. Um, uh, uh, no hard feelings. The just Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah, home.
0: that's the one with uh, she goes yeah. full uh, full Monty. Yeah, and
1: and she goes full Monty. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and it's shot really, really well. And yeah, this it's very guy beautiful. knows how to frame a shot. He knows how to bring out the beauty in whatever his subject is, whether it's a person or scenery or it's whatever.
0: Snow. Can I say this right now? Yeah. The first thing you see in the film is snow being shot. Yeah. Beautiful snow in New England. It's snow porn, like you said, yeah, and it's shot. It's shot in a
1: five-three aspect ratio, which is mm-hmm. not super common um, anymore, at least, and uh, and and it leaves kind of thinner lines on the side of the screen. So it's almost like every shot you're watching, that's at least you know like a wide shot is. It's like you're watching. It's like you're looking at a, a postcard. It's like you're sifting well, through five by seven photographs. It looks just like that, and I think that's by and design. And
0: digital digital grain too. Um, they, they,
1: digital grain, yeah. yeah they,
0: they talked about like there a lot of conversation about this film was about the aesthetic look that it was intentionally made to look like like a Hal Ashby film.
1: Yeah, you know, from and the even era. just like the, yeah, there's like the, the the super antiquated zooms, like the quick I saw zooms. Saw that. On, yes,
0: yes, yes. Many times.
1: Yeah, so, a lot of stuff. It, it reminded me of like Midnight Cowboy or like The Graduate. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of shots that are reminiscent of those movies. Um, and it kind of makes you wonder like why they stopped doing those shots a little bit because they really work in this, um, just for different reasons. They're, uh, they're,
0: they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're methodical. Um, you know, going back to nobody's fool for a second and the director, uh, was it Richard Benton?
1: hmm Rob, uh, Robert, Robert. Benton. Benton sorry. Yeah. Um,
0: well, one of his films that won the best picture with, you know, uh, it was Kramer versus Kramer, a movie that's mm-hmm. been like forgotten. I Told you, has one of the most beautiful scenes I've ever seen in a film. If have you have, you've seen Kramer vs. Kramer, haven't you? I
1: have not seen it. I, you oh, wow. gave me the book, uh, the Avery Corman wrote it, right? The book,
0: oh, yeah. But uh, let me say this though, uh, yeah. yeah, the Corman's Korman, a great writer, by the way. But yeah,
1: I read Oh God, I haven't gotten to Kramer vs. Kramer yet, though.
0: There are moments in Kramer vs. Kramer that are among the most beautiful I've ever seen in a film, and there's, I think it's Central Park when, um, uh, goodness gracious, I can't, why can't I talk tonight? Uh, let me Let me get the names for you real quick because I know if i don 't get the names i'm going to get hate mail <laughs> so no Dustin Hoffman when he when mm-hmm. his son gets injured at the park there's there 's a steady cam shot where they show him grabbing his son and running through downtown right mm-hmm. it 's sustained it 's a gorgeous shot it 's so beautiful because it 's real it 's all real locations it's shot realistically the park is real and that 's the same director who would make you know snow porn and nobody 's fooled yeah and um, there are shots reminiscent of that in the holdovers, where it's just let me point my camera at a beautiful scene, zoom up, and that's all you need. Like yeah. it, it feels. Can I, how, what's the word you would? What's the word I'm looking for, Ethan? It feels. I don't. Want, I don't want to say nostalgic. I don't think that's the right word. Picaresque. Um, maybe I would. I would almost say it, it feels like a loving embrace like it, it mm-hmm. feels it feels warm in a way that i think a lot of digital productions don't feel warm yeah like like i don't know i don't want to sound pretentious twat like people who say that vinyl mm-hmm. sounds better than
1: digital but it it is a travesty that this didn't get i mean i know we talk about you know the the integrity of the oscars all the time but i mean, it is, I, I do think it, I was bummed that this didn't get um, nominated for cinematography. Personally. Yeah, I, I
0: was actually kind of shocked when I when I saw that yeah. didn't happen. Like, I was
1: shocked. Yeah, I was shocked more than anything. But I was like, man, that sucks. Like, I thought it would have even won maybe. Um, but yeah, that's a shame.
0: Well, I think um, if we're going to talk about Oscars, which I don't really want to spend a lot of time on, but I mm-hmm. think if you look at the nominations that the holdovers did get, you could realize this is a spoiler film. Like, like nobody's nobody is talking about the over is getting shafted on cinematography because we're too busy yeah. talking about barbie not getting best oh, actress yeah. and that you know and not yeah. getting best director like worthless it's a worthless conversation yeah because we're, yeah. no, we're not because we're not talking no. yeah we're not talking about films and no one's talking about godzilla getting nominated for best, yeah. best visual effects you know yeah yeah so but that's no, totally but that's a spoiler Wait, it d- it that's a spoiler nom- too it- no it did Godzilla, oh, okay. Godzilla minus one, first Godzilla movie okay. nominated for an Oscar.
1: That's great. No, that, I hope it wins. That, yeah, well, you, be, I mean when, it probably won't. But
0: when when we do our caps, when we do our yearly recap soon, um, I have things to say. So, but um, but I'll say this: um, I was actually shocked when this movie did not get Best Cinematography, uh, even a nomination. It's it's kind of a shame.
1: Mm-hmm. It's kind of yeah, a shame. Totally. So it really is.
0: So let's talk about '70s stuff. Um, let's talk about yeah. reasons why we connected these two. So the holdovers is in is the latest in a very long, very noble and sometimes ignoble lineage of very specific films that I would like to call the curmudgeonly teacher films. And <laughs> now,
1: Mr. Like Mr. Holland's Opus, or mist-
0: you know what? I forgot that movie existed until you just brought it up. So Mr. Holland's Opus. I was going to say, goodness gracious! I was going to say um, Robin Williams. Uh,
1: was, oh yeah. What was it? The Dead Poet Society?
0: Dead Poet Society or Robin Williams and Goodwill Hunting. Or oh Goodwill Hunting too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but there's just so many of these films where you have curmudgeony teacher has to deal with alternative student, right? Yeah. You know, well,
1: and this this one directly reminded me have you seen the nineteen eighty seven movie Summer School with Mark Harmon?
0: Yes I have. Yes it, I have. It's it, been a so while. So
1: the setup of that movie was he gets basically uh he gets you know uh, Stiff armed into having to to teach this summer school class over the summer instead of going to Hawaii, and um, he has to basically just sit there and and deal with these uh, you know hoodlums hoodlums you know slackers, and um, yeah, it very much reminded me of summer school with the beginning of this movie how Giamatti gets. I'll, I'll say attracted. this.
0: When I watched the Holdovers and I saw that he was in a group of these kids, you know, the Mormon kid, the Korean kid, yeah, the butthole kid, the surfer kid, all or the football kid. I thought to myself, "Oh no, oh no, <laughs> this is going to go in a place I don't want it to go." And magically, a helicopter arrives just yeah to to rescue us from that.
1: And it I takes... was wondering how it was going to get out of there because that <laughs> one kid was so unlikable. The yeah. bully, yeah, he, oh was. my gosh,
0: yeah. Uh, as the as the the cook called him, like the king of the assholes. Yeah, but, exactly. But I'll say this: like, so the helicopter comes and rescues us from these horrible characters. So we focus just on Paul Giamatti and the boy. Mm-hmm. And by the way, you've never seen this actor before, one who plays no. the kid, because he's never been in anything before. Yeah, this yeah, is and his and first it, anything. It, it
1: shows for better or worse, but I I think it it definitely he definitely seems like someone who would have been casted in 1970 in a movie. He's yeah. Super awkward. He's cringy. He's not even like a great actor, but he works for this part. Well, he he Beautiful. won
0: a he won like a lottery or something. He um they were, the the story goes is that they were filming on this location and they you know they just decided to to look at actors from the school and he he auditioned and he won the role. Like this is wow. it. This is his only acting credit ever. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. He's he's a <laughs> he's a little much. Um.
1: Yeah. But he works though. I think for for what it what yeah. his character is trying to be.
0: Yeah, uh, I would have never guessed he was eighteen. Like, mm. like he's one of the rare young people that looks older. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he he looks like he's like twenty six, but no, he's mm-hmm. eighteen. He's wow.
1: I did not know that.
0: Yeah, he's uh enjoy it while it lasts. Yeah. Like but um, but no, then you have then you have some, but you have a, a really good ensemble cast, even though it's a very small picture. Uh, You have Divine Joy Randolph as the cook of Mary Lamb. She's great. Nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Yep, yeah. Probably the favorite, I heard. Probably the favorite.
1: She was in... um, Over Lily Gladstone?
0: Uh, Lily Gladstone was nominated for Best Actress.
1: Best Actress, okay. Yeah. Um, No, yeah, she was in... um, Was it... That uh, uh, Any that Murphy movie, yeah, Dolomite, the Dolomite is my movie, name. yeah. Yep. She was great in that. She was, I was very like, good. Wow, I'd never seen her in anything before then. She was awesome. She's in Only Murders in the Building too, if you watch that show. But
0: she's, uh, um, yeah, she's really good. I haven't watched it yet, but she's also one of those people that's playing a different age because she's clearly not old enough to be the mother. Yeah, of, of the boy who was killed in Vietnam. Yeah, but uh, but no, years. she's but she's great. She's fantastic. She's really good. She has got a lot of a lot of. Um, She's got a lot of sass in her character. Yeah. I think it just needs enough.
1: And she's kind of the surrogate for anyone who doesn't relate to either the boy or Giamatti's character. She's kind of that surrogate to kind of um, you know, draw you in to the story, I think.
0: You know what's funny? Um the thing about the Holdover, the thing that the reason I think the movie works for me as a whole, um I have some criticisms, but is that you have this character, this is this is it. This is the same as this is the same as nobody's fool. Um Yes, it's an ensemble. Yes, we have a plot, but but this is a Paul Giamatti film. It is a showpiece for him. Um, I think if you're asking me right now, hand on the hand on my imaginary Bible, I think Paul Giamatti is the favorite to win Best Actor at the Academy Awards. I think oh, I is. love it. I think yeah, he's, he's never won before. No, no, he's not. He's he's one of those actors like Philip Seymour Hoffman who just works. He will be yeah. in prestige films and he will be in garbage films and he will just yep. be wherever he's called to be he and he's been in both many times yeah
1: he, and, and i think in, and luckily the oscars works at least with best act with acting nominations um the people who vote they vote for the person they want to see go on that stage and receive the award you know it, it's it's less i think about the performance a lot of the times than mm-hmm. than it is unless it's like so undeniable like um like um uh, you know, the father with, uh, what's his Anthony name? Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins. Like, I think it's like, that was undeniable. Yeah. he was the best that year, but like something like this, where this year I think is a, a crap shoot. I think well, it can be anybody. Um, I think people want to see him receive the award. Well,
0: here's my fear though. I, again, I'm, I, I sound like I'm giving the Oscars a lot more of my, my time, but I know. Yeah. Um, in 2009, there was the wrestler and mm-hmm. there was the milk movie with, um, you know, um, Sean, Penn. Sean Penn. Yeah. And, And I got to tell you right now, if it had not been a political year for a very specific cause, like everybody and their brother and their mother and their – even newborn children knew that it was going to be Mickey Rourke's year. It was obvious. He was great. Obvious. And But no, it was given to Harvey Milk. It was given to Sean Penn for a very politicalized reason. And that's fine. It doesn't change the fact that the movie was great. It doesn't change the fact that Mickey Rourke was great in it. Mickey Rourke had a very nice comeback. He was part of the MCU. He was part of the Expendables. You know, he get, he still got to dress like a pimp and carry his little dog. So he's having a very good life out of it.
1: Yeah. But,
0: um, but go figure. Go go Mickey. But Paul yeah. Giamatti's different. Like This is not an actor who has a lot of chances to, to do something like this. And mm-hmm. I think you said you've never seen American Splendor. Um, American Splendor was the movie that came out just before Sideways.
1: Yeah, same year, right? Or the year before?
0: Year before. And I think that's kind of what led him to this. Like he'd would he he been toiling yeah. away in support roles, like The Negotiator. He was in um, the Howard Stern film. He was in Big right, Fat Loser. <laughs> Big Fat Loser. Big Fat Liar. Yeah, Big Fat Liar. Liar.
1: The Amanda Bynes.
0: Yeah, exactly. Frankie Muniz. Yeah. But, you know, he's always been this fantastic actor just waiting to burst out, given the opportunity. But yeah. can I be honest with you? Look at him. Yeah. I mean, I'm he's being there. honest here. Look at him. He's not he, all-new. But he,
1: but he works for every single role he's ever he done. And because and he can play – just he can blend in and he, or he can – you know, not blend in uh, physically because I think he has a really distinct look. Very. But, you know, he can blend in as a character. Like he knows how to – He played not, Santa he, he Claus.
0: He, he doesn't Santa upstage.
1: Claus. He doesn't upstage anybody if he doesn't have to, and he knows how to, you know, take a backseat.
0: You know who he's great in? One of my favorite Paul Giamatti movies of all time is a movie called Shoot 'Em Up. And
1: I've Shoot
0: 'Em up, up. Yeah, Shoot 'Em Up with Clive Owen. It's an action film, and he basically plays a Bugs Bunny villain. I'm not joking. He kills people with carrots, right? <laughs> That's great. Yeah. And one here's a little. I'm going to give you a little background. I, you probably forgot this. When I was um, when you first started joining Pop Zara, one of the things I had you look at was different reviews to for editing. And I don't know if you mm-hmm. remember this. A lot of people don't. I actually use a snippet of Roger Ebert's review for Shoot 'em up as as a test to see about writing. Do you know that? Okay. No. You don't, don't remember think this? So. Yeah, so, I don't
1: remember the I don't remember I remember the process. I don't remember the, so, the energy, shoot 'em up though.
0: Shoot 'em up was the first movie that Giamatti made after Sideways. Okay. It, was a, it was an action epic, right, starring uh, – Cl- again, this was when Clive Owen was still contending to be a big action star. Yeah. I love Clive didn't Owen. Didn't it didn't really work. It just, it just didn't really work. But but yeah. not for lack of trying. He did a good job. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you – the. let me read you the first paragraph in Roger Ebert's review. It was very small, but I love it. I think it's my favorite thing he's ever written. He's This is Roger Ebert's review for Shoot'em Up, 2007, by the way. Um, says, I don't need a lot of research to be confident in stating that never before have I seen a movie open with a hero delivering a baby during a gun battle, severing the umbilical cord with a gunshot, and then killing the villain by penetrating his brain with a raw carrot. Yes, a (laughs) carrot will do that in this movie. It will do a lot of things. And as good as Clive Owen is, Giamatti's better, and he's great. He literally plays Bugs Bunny as a villain, and he's fantastic. And that's the movie he chose after Sideways. And hmm. it just didn't work for a lot of people though because he's just – he's – again, the man works. But the holdovers – let me ask you a question about this. A lot of people compare yeah. it to Sideways. Do you think – if you look at Paul Giamatti's au revoir, right, you look at his, mm-hmm. his entire career, what do you think will be considered his defining role if, if this was it, if this was his last film? what do you think would be it? Do you think sideways. sideways sideways for sure? Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah I mean, j- j- uh, just because sideways is one of those movies that kind of transcends, um, like it was, it was a cultural, not I don't phenomenon is the right word, but people still reference it. Like it, it is the wine movie. It's people go wine tasting. I, I, my parents are big wine, uh, quote unquote snobs as they would call themselves. And they are, they go, they used to go at least wine tasting like every weekend. And um, you know, you go wine tasting people bring up sideways, like all the time. It's a thing. And I think it's kind of transcended the film medium uh in a lot of ways and and Giamatti is the face of the movie. Like it's a great movie. Um and, well no no like, Sandra so... oh
0: man. She's the star. Sandra <laughs> no. No. She was married yeah. to mean, her
1: Thomas faith. Thomas Hayden Church is great. Um, the girl what's her name? uh from Candyman. Why am I blanking her name? She's great. Um But yeah, Paul Giamatti is he he in in a lot of ways he makes the movie what it is. He's erratic. He is he's uh, passionate. He's this. He's the epitome of like a misunderstood wine snob, and nobody else understands grapes like he does and (laughs) and wine like he does. And uh, he's just so good. No, he's he
0: is really he's excellent. By the way, that movie is wine porn. It is, Is and
1: and and it's like if you've ever gone wine tasting, if you've ever gone to wine country, it encapsulates that mood and the. The, the pace of what that's like really well. And um, yeah, it's great. I love, I love sideways. Yeah. We, and, yeah we, we I, could I think have, sideways is, I think sideways is the, the quintessential Paul Giamatti movie. We,
0: we could have easily paired um, the holdovers with sideways or sideways yeah. with, with nobody's fool, by the way, it's very similar yeah true. In, in a way that their character studies. And I will say this um, yeah. sideways is the movie that I think anybody who's worried about not being great at something should watch. Because it shows you that when you become the ultimate connoisseur, you become a sommelier of of anything. You lose focus, right? You're you're more yeah. worried. You're you become more worried on form instead of function. Like yeah. you know, you know, they've done every study they've ever done on wine tasting has basically said if you hide the label, if you hide the label, if you hide the vintage, if you put it in like glass even wine experts really can't tell the difference between really good wine and box wine. Yeah. Like it's it's Mm -hmm. a lot of it's just prestige and, you know, you want to show up your show up people. It's just how it goes. There's a lot of it's psychosomatic. It's it's like the art critic thing,
1: right? It's like Mm -hmm. at some point when you're trying to become an art critic, you you there you have a chip on your shoulder because a lot of people look at you like oh he didn't make it in whatever in in art so he has to be a critic of it. Mm-hmm. Uh well, can certain... those
0: who can't do teach. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's the
1: same type of thing. And so like you become kind of like you have this chip on your shoulder until you reach you know the point of like a Roger Ebert status or something like that. Then you know you've made it. But before in that in that interim uh, where, you know, you're just pretty much just talking about it all the time instead of, you know, getting praise for talking about it all the time. You know, you have this chip on your shoulder and you're really kind of worried about what you say and worried about your opinion and worried about if your opinion is like the quote unquote correct opinion. And so like, yeah, that's what G- Giamatti is in that interim <laughs> period in that movie. And it, yeah, it's brilliant. He's um, brilliant. I will say. What's that?
0: If you look like Paul Newman, though. Like it, that would have yeah, been a be very a different, different movie, movie. Yeah, be it, very it different yeah. you
1: like oh he's got enough going for he's got a lot going for him with like we don't care about his character <laughs> yeah um, he's good looking enough he can do something else um, yeah but uh, I, I would say John Adams the uh the yes. little, the TV thing he did I think is another one that um, people look at when but, the, you know it's a different
0: well that's uh, the thing it's though, a different side of him you know you know that's like when people try to like hero cast him as the new penguin. Like, yeah. I, I almost feel bad because when Danny DeVito was picked the Penguin in Batman Returns, it's like, it's because he looked like Danny DeVito.
1: Yep. Yeah, he did. You know,
0: and, like, to be honest, I mean, if you're just stunt casting, you do Paul Giamatti, like, yeah. you know, or, yeah. or or Peter Dinklage, you know, yeah. but, um, but no, it's like, it's, it's fun about Paul Giamatti, though, is that uh he does inhabit a role, and, and I gotta tell you something, in the holdovers, and I, it's not really fair, to, I guess, to compare one role to the other, but... In the holdovers, there is something about his character that is artificial that I do Mm -hmm. like, and for me, it's like catnip because I like seeing performances like this. And even though I know it's elevated, even though I know it's sort of played up, and even though I know it's sort of juiced up a little, I it does for me. It's like it's cold outside, it's snowy, it's very cold. You come inside and you drink hot chocolate. Like there's something relaxing about. You know this type of character where you get to watch on the screen and enjoy, and, and I think more than anything else, Ethan, um, like you're a literate guy, you obviously read a lot, and mm-hmm. you know when you when you're enjoying a good book or a good short story, like you you enjoy the process of it, and you, and you don't I don't know if you feel like this, but you don't want it to end, and I yeah. think um, there are elements of the holdovers that has the same feelings that for me evoked or evoked in Nobody's Fool in the fact that you're watching a character and you want to spend time with this character. Even though this character may not be perfect, the flaws sort of make the character more redeemable in a way. Like, you know, like, why do I want to spend time with a Paul G. character? He smells bad. He's an asshole. He mistreats people. So let's make him the hero of our film. Why does that work so much? Why do we like buttholes?
1: I think it's a catharsis, maybe. Um, And that's kind of what I liked about... His character here is he's he's um, you know this movie shows different sides of depression. I think it shows Mm -hmm. it from it shows it as a child, you know, where you don't maybe realize you're depressed. Um, you know, as a teenager, you know, and and you have reasons to be, uh, maybe, but you know, you don't realize that you are all the time, and you know, but but with a kid, what was the character's name? I can't remember. Uh,
0: Angus. Angus, thank you. Or Tully, sorry, Tully. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so, so he's he's obviously depressed. You know, his dad's we find out, has some issues going on there, and his, his mom and stepdad don't really want to see him. And um, But he's still at an age where, like, y- you know, the magic of Christmas is still a potential. Uh, there's still potential for that. And, you know, he's not old enough yet where he realizes that, you know, the magic of Christmas really only exists in movies like this. And, hmm. But then on the other hand, you have... Uh, Paul Giamatti, who has maybe lived for decades with depression, and you see him on the other side of it, and you know he doesn't pick fights; he lets the fights come to him, and he he well, he defeats them with his intelligence instead of with his with his uh, think, any physical fists or anything like that.
0: What do you what, as he would call it, fisticuffs? But um, yeah. What, what do you think of the revelation? And again, spoiler here for a second. Cover your ears if you haven't watched the film. Uh, the revelation that they're both taking the same medication
1: yeah that was cool um I, I i think uh i think it definitely is the intention of the movie to show this the ended sides of depression mm-hmm. um and uh you know he doesn't wallow he's very honest with his flaws and at this point you know he's he has candor and he's not like you know when he gets criticized he's like yeah i know i'm like that you know he laughs maybe um Whereas, you know, when he if you were a kid, you know, he'd wallow in it a little bit more and he'd get down about it. But here he's just like that. It is what it is. I'm still depressed at the end of the day, though. You know,
0: he's he's rehearsed. He knows how to answer the question about his eye. He knows how to answer the question about his body smell. He, He cannot hide it. You know, he cannot hide it. He can cover it with bathroom, you know, freshener. But yeah, the he's
1: realistic. now. Yeah,
0: he's realistic, and but he talks he talks down about himself. I don't have a face for romance. I don't do this. I don't do this. He's resigned himself to being alone and miserable. And I will say this um, again: spoiler thing. Your question is the movie makes you feel that the boy is being mistreated by his parents that they they you know they flubbed him off. Then you find a reveal about what's actually happening, and like nobody's fool. Like you mentioned, in nobody's fool. You know, Sully, Sully makes good with the man who married his ex-wife and raised his mm-hmm. child. And it's, you know, it's not, it's not antagonistic at all. Yeah. It's, it's more correct. And then you find out about Telly, his mom and his new husband, or her new husband, that they had a point. That the son yeah. didn't understand the damage. You know, the scene when he visits his father and he, yeah. gives, and he gives the father the gift and didn't realize how much damage that would cause. Like, yeah. The parents had a point.
1: Because yeah, Tully's still, still
0: a kid; he's still a kid.
1: Yeah, he and and that's the thing too. It's like he's at this a point in his life where he you still see, you still see the childlike elements. Like he's before he he gets the what was it a snow globe or whatever it was. Yeah. Like he looks at it kind of like mm, forlorn, like longingly. Like that's you know that's a beautiful image of Christmas, you know, and with Santa and I think it was a Baby Jesus or whatever. And um, you know maybe he's a little nostalgic about simpler times in his own life. Mm-hmm. Um hoping that maybe he can get there again. Um whereas yeah, you get Giamatti already knows it's not gonna it's it can only be as good as as the present and how he makes his relationships with other people maybe.
0: And I was gonna say, uh there is a revelation which is come, may have come off a little contrived. You know, there's has to in, in some movies there always has to be a cause and effect. Things just can't yeah. be an effect. You know, you can't just be who you are. There has to be rationale. But I've got to give you two examples of this and you tell me what you think. Like we've seen multiple times characters comment that Paul Giamatti's character is an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Like literally the last scene in the movie is him drinking and driving, right? Yeah. It is never brought up in a negative connotation. <laughs> it is – like they mention he's a drunk because he smells. Yeah. But he, they show him driving. They show him getting drunk. They show him showing up to class drinking. Like he's not this paragon of virtue. He's yeah. an alcoholic. And he shows up to class drunk, and it's never made into anything. Nobody ever brings yeah. it up. Like, I didn't even think about that. You're right. Yeah, he's literally again. Let me let me spoil it for you. The very last scene in the movie is him drinking and driving away. Like yeah. And but it's never brought up as as something. It's like Chekhov's gun. It gets you. It gets you primed to think. Well, this is gonna play it. He's gonna get into a car accident. Something's gonna happen. You know, he's gonna beat someone up. He's gonna he's gonna go with a prostitute and you know get a candy cane. Something's gonna happen. It never does. Yeah, and it's sort of is a fake out to me. It's like a misdirection.
1: And and it's funny because this movie does that a lot. Like there's times when you think that Tully's Mm -hmm. gonna run away and he doesn't, you know, or you think he's gonna ditch the romance. And exactly, like yeah, exactly. There's no. Uh, there's no really big dramatic, uh, moments that happen necessarily. And there's also not really, uh, it's never about like the happy ending either. Mm-hmm. Right. Like Hunnam doesn't get the girl. Um, Mary and the janitor don't end up together. Mm-hmm. Um, the boy never reconciles with his family, with his parents. He never, well, they never show him kind of, you know, bearing the hatchet. like, why didn't you want to see me during Christmas? Like there's nothing ever like that.
0: There's no, there's no tidy, tidy, uh, like I said, um, resolutions to anything. It's kind of, and I go back to nobody's fool. Same thing. Like you're being dropped into an environment, you're observing, and then you're being pulled out before you get, I mean, I would say the holdovers is more structured than nobody's fool. It it follows more formula, but there's no, there's no um, lessons learned other than be yourself.
1: But, like, nobody's full – like, there's no happy endings, but there's no misery porn either. Like, we're not watching exactly. people who just get beat to the ground over and over again, per se. I
0: uh, I do want to make a, a a thought about something. and I want your opinion of this. There's been a lot of criticism, like Green Book, that the film is not of the 70s, even though it's supposed to take place in, what, 70s, 70, 71. It's, yeah. um, there was one criticism I read. Uh, I'm not going to read you the whole thing because, frankly, I, I like you too much. But it was from the it was uh, it was from the New Yorker, right? It was hmm. written. Let me get the guy's name real quick. Uh, it was written by a guy named Richard Brody. Uh, he probably means something to somebody. But I want to, yeah. Like I said, every it's it. Sometimes movies that become universally liked, um, it triggers something in people where said, oh, people like this film. Well, I must destroy it. Like yeah. it just it's the way. The it goes. Toy Story three. exactly it just it just triggers something in somebody like because i think the cruelest thing you can do to an intellectual is say that they have something in common with a common man that doesn't require (laughs) intellectualism like Mm -hmm. like again i I mentioned a richard russo story where he talked about you know charles dickens and he figured it out like when you let go because that's an affront to yourself like how dare i share the same air you know as these as these peons well sorry. You know, we outnumber you 10 to 1, so kill the rich. But um, Mm. they talk about the falseness. I I, I saw this pop up like the the blowback is that the movie's false. Oh, it wants to be a 70s film. It's filmed like a 70s film, but yet it's not of the 70s. But I get that a little bit. I get that. But there was some banal reason, and I wanted to get your opinion of it. Uh, Let me read you a snippet of what he wrote. He says, Ready for this? -hmm. He says the Vietnam War shows up as a cruel infliction on those drafted to fight in it, and the injustice of it is class-based inequality of the draft, as its students' deferments allow the money to avoid service. Right, but there's no context, no sense that there were protests nationwide, maybe even at Barnard's nearest town. There's no sense that not only the war but opposition to it was controversial and that taking a stand against it, though well within the intellectual mainstream, remained outside the purview of much of the national media. There's no inkling of the Kent State killings and other attacks on anti-war protesters, no mention of the My Lai Massacre. There's no hint in the movie of any political conflicts involving race, no suggestion of controversy regarding abortion, the rights of gay people, nothing about women's lib. And then he says, it's not done. Then he says, yet it was impossible to be alive at the time, even as a teenager, and not be aware of these things. And I thought to myself, like, what do you what do you think when you hear that?
1: Um, several things. First of all, I, uh, 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 oh man, first of all, not everything has to. There's there's this school of thought that people think that everything has to be attached, connected to sociopolitical political Mm -hmm. conflicts and stuff, which is totally erroneous. That's ridiculous. Um, second of all, um, it, it a could have been intentional to leave that stuff out to show. Maybe how uh, myopic these kids were and these people in this in this—it's a boarding school, mind you. They probably don't have a television um, anyway, but oh, they do in the like the comp the uh, the woman, the teachers' lounge or whatever yeah. but, or whatever it is. But um, uh, second of all, we do see somebody make a racial remark about the the lunch lady. Um, and the and the Asian
0: the, kid and the Asian and kid.
1: Asian kid. Yeah, yeah, we see. So there's, I mean, there's, there's tensions for sure. Like you, you, you feel, I felt it a couple times. On the other hand, um, I, I think it does a good job maybe of conveying what life was like in a small town at that time. Maybe people, it, it's easy to, if you, if you live in a big city or you live in, um, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine now that it's, that it was easy to escape, uh, the news maybe, but, um, you know, we live in a social media era, but I, th- well, I think that there was a time in, in place where you weren't just inundated with these stories all the time, maybe. Well, and, or, or maybe you wanted to escape them. Heck, now people want to escape them. Well, people want to escape this stuff now.
0: I'll tell you what. Uh, we're not talking about American Splendor, right? But there's a scene in American Splendor that takes place like in 1983 mm-hmm. where Harvey Picar played by Giamatti, is on the David Letterman show. And his wife is in the, back, you know, in the back office watching, and she's trying to flip through the channels. And the guy's like, what are you trying to find out? And she says something. I didn't even think about it. She says, I'm trying to find the news. There's a big story about to break, about the, about the, Iran, about the Contras being sold to the Iran, you know, the Iran yeah, I mean, sure, yeah. but it's like She's like, there's a big story about to break. How do you know that? Mm. Like, how do you yeah. know a story is about to break? Because this movie was written in the future. Yeah. and and that's what I thought when I saw this is that these people they have this thing that in order for something to be a period piece the people in the movie must experience everything that went on in that time and, yeah. and I, I start, I'm starting to hear this criticism more so like if a movie takes place in 1971 then they'll brag about, oh, we want it to be authentic. We used films. We used everything. So every car in that movie will be from 1971. Every song in that movie is going to be whatever was the top 10 in 1971. All the clothing yes. will be – but that's not how the world works.
1: That's not how the world works. Yeah, not every yeah.
0: – yeah, look around now. Is every
1: car from 2024- yeah, 2024 exactly. –
0: and it's yeah. like you know, it's kind of a joke with Vietnam films. It's like, oh, you know, you are yeah. watching a Vietnam film because Clarence Clearwater Revivals on. You know, it's yeah. like it's like the it's like the, the the expectation that everybody alive experienced everything about everything, and yeah. and that's what was ironic when I read this criticism. Not just from this guy; it's just the most articulate version of it. Is that this movie's failing is because it's not as outraged about the same things that I am outraged about? Same with yeah. the Green Book. Like, oh, they talked. Like, oh my god, that's not real. Like, how come they didn't explore more about racism? Well, because not everybody experiences racism the same way. Like, it's not that mm-hmm. – you know why this movie doesn't really focus on the Kent State killings or gay rights? It's because it's not that movie.
1: Yeah, and like, this goes back to Song of the South. People were yeah, upset exactly. that you know, the people weren't more upset that they were um, – Indentured servants, even though it did not take place during, uh, it took place during Reconstruction. But exactly, I digress.
0: Um, I mean, wait, here wait, wait, hold in, on, in hold, hold on a second. Are you saying that people are confused about why they're hating a movie that they're not allowed to watch, <laughs> that they haven't shuck, seen, shuck. Yeah. not allowed to watch, not even allowed yeah. to see it? They can't watch it. So <laughs> uh, it's crazy, yeah.
1: Um, in in the holdovers, Vietnam's kind of, I, I like how it handles the context. It, it handles Vietnam more as subtext than context, even. Uh, directs it towards the privileged students, kind of like saying, "Look, I know you got the raw deal being here, but at least still you have the opportunity to do something." You know, it, it's it's displayed in the lunch lady, uh, uh, Joy Divine. wasn't what was the character's name? Uh, uh, I forget her name too. In in the film, yeah, Mary, right? Mary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, it's displayed in Mary's character. She lost her son at the Vietnam War, like. Um, how she's dealing with this it it was very much a who do you know who died in the war Uh, who do you know who's fighting in the war but
0: it's not played as it's not played for racial reasons though like it's subtext but it's not overtly no um, and,
1: and in the there's a great scene in the bar in the restaurant where the two men are kind of haranguing uh accosting Tully. Well, he, and, Tully's
0: being and, a jerk too. Yeah, Disney they're they're he, yeah. they're
1: both being yeah they're both being dicks towards each other, and uh, Paul Giamatti buys them a beer. But in a in a lesser movie, uh, who's written their character not knowing their character, th- he would have bought them a beer out of cowardice. You know, maybe like but, okay, I you know I'm I I'm afraid of these people. I'm gonna, let, I'll buy you a beer. Let's sweep but, it under the rug. But,
0: let's be let's be clear that one of the men that he bought the beer had been disfigured in Vietnam. He lost his exactly. Map. And he's
1: buying the beer as as an olive branch, as almost like a thank you, like uh, a sign of respect. It's not cowardice. He's not saying I want to get out of this issue. He's saying I want to thank you. Like I like, listen. I understand why you are aggressive. This kid has no right to be aggressive. He just didn't get to see his mommy exactly. during Christmas, exactly, or whatever. It, but then, it, but then it's beautiful because it turns later in the movie, and Giamatti's character understands maybe why even though he didn't fight in a war, he has his own, he does has have his own crosses to bear. Um, totally. Well, that's what he, he kind of starts to empathize for him. And it's, it's really awesome how it kind of turns it into, even though he didn't, even though he's not a veteran, he didn't lose his arm. Uh, he, he has his own issues. And maybe I, maybe I can't solve the war. Maybe I can't give um, Mary her son back, but I can make a difference in this kid's life because he didn't lose an arm because he didn't, lose his parents because he didn't lose his life I can actually make a difference and I, I love that part of it
0: well, the, um, the Mary character comes around too because she's the one who puts Paul Giamatti in his place because he's so busy uh, inflicting class warfare on himself and saying like these yeah. kids are all privileged these kids are all spoiled and Mary just says how do you know that you do not around these kids all the time like mm-hmm. she's like you don't know what they're going through like she's the least likely character to say that but she's mm-hmm. also the most qualified because she sees both sides of it you know, she's, yeah. she doesn't have the, that particular cross to bear. And I think in a lesser film, you know, there are moments where you get worried. Like, are they going to hook up? Are they going to become a couple? <laughs> like the movie yeah. but it But it's smarter than that. It never goes there. And it's, and it's much more enjoyable. And I think, I don't know if you agree with me on this one, but like Nobody's Fool, there are no fireworks in the film. Like, there are no specific moments of which there are dramatic tension, where everything explodes all the time. It's little moments. It's little, like mm-hmm. the, the scene in Boston, when, uh, when you know, Paul Giamatti's Hunnam and uh, Tully walk up, and he meets his old classmate from 30 years ago.
1: Oh, great scene, yeah.
0: The revelation scene. And you realize you you realize everything you need to know about the character right there, and I don't think I'm going to spoil exactly what it is. I don't think you want me to. But there's a revelation about the character that changes your opinion about him entirely. Mm-hmm. He's a very different person. And it's just – like I said, it's, it's small moments like that that maybe come across as contrived. But isn't that the fun of fiction that you can do that and yeah. get away with it? Like but, we're not watching but a documentary.
1: The, but the expectation that Mary's character has to be just – um like misdirected anger and mm-hmm. just all this stuff. Like why can't she have a mature sense of resentment? Why can't she rightfully resent the people who drafted her son or and, and instead of these rich kids? Like why would she resent well, these kids? They didn't you know what I mean? Like like what's wrong with that? Like well, why can't why does she have to resent the rich kids? That's, like why does she have to do that?
0: That's the thing, that that's the uh the same criticism about Green Book is that they ridicule the idea that an educated black man who played the piano, you know, uh, he was gifted, mm-hmm. you know, would would find fried chicken revelatory from a white man. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it was based on true story. Like, yeah, why, why can't he? Like, yeah, why can't it's, he?
1: It's irony. It's just irony. That's all it is. It's because, not people are reading into this too much. Well,
0: the people the people that are telling are criticizing the film for what it's not are not taking the time to look at the film for what it is. And what they're really doing is they're they're saying this film is not stereotypical enough, like it (laughs) it needs to have more of the '70s stuff. It needs to have more of this, like. And I'll be honest with you, um, people criticize memberberry movies like Ghostbusters or Star Wars because they have those moments like. You know what I'm talking about? Like, how did Ray? You know, how did how did uh, Han Solo get the dice? We need to find out. Yeah. How did the? Yeah. You know, what happened to the Ghostbusters candy bar? We need to know, right? <laughs> but, uh-huh. but I'll be honest with you: what these people are suggesting is the same thing. It's yeah. like it's 1970, so show me some more. Show me some more landmarks of 1970. Like what song was on the radio? Like what was happening in the news? Like it, And I'll be honest with you: I'm kind of tired of that crap. Like yeah, it's just not the way the world works. It doesn't work yeah. like that. It doesn't it doesn't function like that. Like how many people today that you know are aware of what's going on in the world today, right? Like yeah. their their universe, like Ethan, your experience okay, I get it. Stuff's happening in the Middle East, stuff's happening in Europe, stuff's happening in your town, but your life is not directly impacted exactly by those moments. Yeah. Like your life is more impacted by what's happening with your children. Than what's happening in Israel right now, right? Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. Like, and that's why these criticisms just come across as goofy to me.
1: We can't say that there's not enough about um, social issues in the history books, while also criticizing movies that don't put social his- social issues in the history books. That yeah, you can't have it both ways. Well, like, people need to stop overthinking.
0: Exactly. Their well, movies. And and the worst part about the worst criticism of all, and this is my final thought, because frankly, it's stupid, is that. They're not even apocryphal stuff. It's not like, okay, Kent State killings, abortion, gay rights. You're, what you're telling me is the stuff that's amalgamated to be the most important should be applied to everything. You can't have okay. it without it. And that's just not how it works. You know, it's just it's just not – like there was a scene in the new um, Indiana Jones film. Did you see it, by the way, The Dial of Destiny? Yeah, I, yeah, now, I loved it. I don't – Hate it as much as people do. I get why. I get why people look. I get why some people don't like it, but I also get why people like it. But there's, yeah, a, I really liked it. But there's a scene in the film when Indy's at his little crappy apartment, right? And mm-hmm. everybody outside is listening to the Beatles, and you know it's 1968 because everyone's yeah. listening to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Car Club Band. Yeah, and that might be the only time in a film that I have ever heard that song play. Right? Yeah. I've, well, because the Beatles
1: had a had like a chokehold over their music rights too for minute. Yeah,
0: but it's the it's the one time I've ever yeah. seen a group of people listening to the Beatles in a movie, and, yeah. and then you forget. You know what? These were the <laughs> biggest guys in the world. Yeah. That would be happening. That actually yeah. would be happening. And so for me, that was a nice touch, right? But yeah. if I had to listen to the same like allowable jukebox again, yeah, I, yeah, I'd go crazy. Like we have so many songs to choose from, we only play like five. Like yeah, I can't I
1: can't do jukebox soundtracks anymore. This is it, it was it was novel with the big chill or like American graffiti, but it's it's so overdone now. I can't do that. I like either no music or, you know, deeper cuts maybe.
0: Well, what do you think of like I, I made a joke about it last year in 2023, two of the biggest films of the year were Super Mario Brothers and oh, Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy 3. Was it No
1: Sleep Till Brooklyn? Yeah, two yeah.
0: two movies, two blockbusters in 2023 starring Chris Pratt. With Chris Pratt in the scene, had no sleep till Brooklyn. Yeah, go Hollywood, <laughs> like, yeah. go Hollywood, and you know it's just you know. And if I and if I have to hear that that one song ever again in a film, I'm going to scream. You know the 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 one from Kill Bill that something something's march. Like, dun, dun You know the the one from Kill Bill. It's like yeah, I, I never want to hear that ever in a film ever again. I yeah. never want to hear it. It's I'm done. Yeah, but-
1: there's some songs you just can't play in movies anymore.
0: No, like it doesn't.
1: It doesn't. It's like what's the one Pulp Fiction? Like you never hear that in movies anymore because it's it's been there, done that.
0: Yeah, if Quentin Tarantino did it, don't do it. It's been done yeah. perfect.
1: Essentially, yeah, exactly. Yeah,
0: it's you're not. Yeah, it's just. Yeah, I get it. But 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 you see my problem with the the, mm-hmm. the criticism is that there these are not valid criticisms, and I and I think um, they're contrarian criticisms. I don't think they're well thought out. I don't think they're reflective of a movie that doesn't exist. I think they're misreadings of what the film is doing. Like I said, especially with the Mary character, who is great, by the way, one of my favorite characters in the movie. Um, but anyway, I think we've I think we've an, an, analyzed that. So real quick, so final, th- not final thoughts, but what do you think are before we before we start closing up? What do you think the two films have in common that really? stuck out for you the most
1: um trying to make a difference in somebody's life i think both characters paul newman and giamatti um both of the pauls they had a uh, a, a real i uh, never thought of, about
0: that you know what you just I, you know <laughs> what you win you win the podcast
1: thank you yeah uh yeah they both kind of had this uh hunger to make a difference in somebody's life whether I think with Paul Newman, it was because, you know, he had a he he didn't give himself the opportunity to in the first place. Whereas Giamatti, I think, just needed a fine purpose, like where he he tried to find it through teaching. And and in reality, he taught somebody by not in the not in the classroom. He made a difference. Um, And he expresses it several times. He wants to make a difference. But um, another thing, you know, they both have in common the very much like obviously the Christmas, the picturesque Christmas Christmas card imagery and and really great cinematography, Um, the ensemble casts, uh, the the lack of fireworks, as we've said. Yeah. Um, But definitely just the small town vibe. And, and, you know, when he goes, before they go to Boston, like it, it definitely has this, you know, everybody knows everybody type of feeling.
0: You know, what really struck me a lot is and I'm. This is going to sound really silly when I say this. Um, we keep talking about diversity, and I know Oscars have this new rule where you know in order for a film to be nominated for Best Picture, it has to like meet a certain diversity quota. Mm-hmm. And I think and I think there's not enough uh, backlash against that rule. I, yeah. I don't understand it. But you look at Nobody's Fool. I get it. Made in 1994 or whatever, 1993, 94. Uh, pretty white film. Pretty pretty yeah. white. Like. The only thing whiter than the snow is the cast, right? <laughs> I I
1: noticed it too, not because like I cared really, but I was just like, it f- it felt different than a well, than a movie. If it were made now, it would be different. Oh yeah, and, is and, how I took it. Yeah, and I,
0: and I think there's ways to rebake something like this and have that and have natural diversity that doesn't feel tacked on. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, the holdover is not the most diverse film either, right? But at mm-hmm. the same point though, it really makes me wonder. Like when we talk about diversity, we don't. We we talk about like, well, let's let's add a Korean kid. Let's add this. Let's add that. Like, I I don't I don't necessarily think that's the reason why they did it. But when you when you talk about this sort of thing, it's when you talk about nineteen seventy. It's you know the Mary character is very realistic that oh you know a black woman would be the cook at a school like this. Like it may not be the most impactful thing, but I think in lesser hands in nineteen seventy, by the way, they would have like a black woman be the dean of the school. Instead of like an old student. Yeah. And and I think there would have been some sort of cognitive dissonance that your brain would have said, wait a minute, are we in nineteen seventy? And it's not yeah. because and and I wanna be clear about this. It's not because we don't want to see a black woman as a dean. I think that'd be great in, in the right context. But if you're going to go back in time to nineteen seventy and you wanna take advantage of the way things were, no cell phones, you know, thing you know, Bus rides, you know, certain no seatbelts in cars, whatever. You can't have it both ways. Either you want the 70s, you know, carte blanche or you don't want it at all. But you can't have it a la carte. You can't say, I I like this and I like this and I don't like this and I don't like this. And I think, like, if you look at any recent Disney film, there's a falseness at play that, like, it doesn't matter what time it is. There's so much added diversity that it, it does detract a little bit about what they're trying to accomplish um did you see the Willy Wonka film yet?
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah, okay.
0: You probably liked it better than I did.
1: Oh um, I don't think I did.
0: Really? Okay, well I don't I think know. it's possible to like it less. So the, I thought um, you didn't like I thought you liked it. I like parts of it. No, I don't hate the film at all, but I, okay. I did I didn't I'll say this. There's a very good version of that film inside of it that's yes, exactly. that's trapped under nonsense. Um hundred yeah, percent.
1: There's there, the original story there's so much there that could have been tapped into well, that was just not explored.
0: I'll say this. I'll say this. And this is not fair. We're not – this is not a Willy Wonka podcast, so I'll just say yeah. this. Um, Timothy Chamele is miscast. Yeah, um, not like, good Like he's, he's, just, he's just not, not a president. I don't
1: like him as an actor anyway. I don't think he's – I think he was in a, one movie that got recognition well, and then he's, he's just been... – He's
0: young and handsome. Yeah, and, exactly. And therefore, we're going to be stuck with him for about ten movies before we realize it's the,
1: Di- it's the DiCaprio thing. Except you know. we haven't realized DiCaprio can't really act. But um, but DiCaprio that's a has here's the thing.
0: Here's the thing, though. DiCaprio has been turning into Orson Welles. Yeah, <laughs> like like that's the thing. In though. more ways than one. See, see, we didn't realize that DiCaprio was actually a clone of Orson Welles. Yeah, that's why when Orson Welles disappeared, Leonardo DiCaprio showed up. Like yeah. that, like. That's my conspiracy theory. Like the older he gets, the more he turns into Orson Welles. But I'll say this though, uh, DiCaprio is a much better actor than Timothy Chalamet. Can we just say that? Mm-hmm. Like he's he's actually interesting and actually kinda yeah, fun. Is, he and, is. in the right movie. He's actually pretty good. Yeah. Like like putting him in a Tarantino movie was a stroke of genius. Can yeah, I don't that?
1: think he can't he can't play straight though. He he does not know how to act a character. That's that's just like a normal person. He has to be some erraticism there like the guy in Killers of the Flower Moon or in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He has to almost be playing like satire. I don't think he can play a straight character.
0: I think, I'll say this though, whether whether you think he's a great actor or not, I think is up for debate, but I'll say this about DiCaprio. Um, he's interesting. And I think he chooses yeah. interesting roles. And I think that alone is worth his time. Like, yeah. I don't think he's going to be in a substandard film that's low budget. I think he's he realizes that films are built around him and you know what yeah. he's pretty good at it like he's he's yeah. he's maintained a career
1: but but straight up just talent wise could you imagine him do having the chops to do what giamatti did in the no. holdovers
0: like like i said i don't i don't think clint eastwood could have done the paul newman character of course Nobody's yeah fun. yeah like there is such a thing about. but paul
1: newman's also like a better actor than clint eastwood too like I think,
0: yes no clint eastwood yeah. clint eastwood is clint eastwood yeah, exactly. Like like I like Clint Eastwood, but that particular flavor does not fit yeah. with everything. Like yeah. can you imagine Paul Newman in Unforgiven?
1: I but he he could make it work though.
0: It would be de- it would be a very different movie. It'd be
1: a different movie, but he could do something well with it. Exactly. I think he could do something with it, yeah.
0: I do think I do think um <laughs> I do I do I definitely think personality matters in films and I think it's fun to think mm-hmm. about like the whole Michael J. Fox Eric Stoltz dichotomy. Like, how, oh yeah, how would Back to the Future be different? You yeah. know, like we could we could we could debate that yeah. forever. That's a lot of fun. But going back to Wonka though, um, real quick, I think Wonka was uh, a very potentially good movie buried under bad choices, unforgettable songs, and I I actually think there are parts of it that are wonderful. Actually, I think there are parts mm-hmm. that remind you that these are the Paddington people. Yeah. Um, but they wanted their cake and eat it too. Or they wanted their candy and eat it too. They wanted this to be a prequel to a vastly different film. And they kept yeah. insisting that this was a prequel to a film that had no DNA connecting it to yeah. it. Right? And I think that was a mistake. I think if it had done its own thing, it didn't insist on being a prequel to the Gene Wilder movie, which it kept insisting.
1: Mm-hmm. And it is nothing. It's nothing no, like
0: Gene nothing, Wilder. nothing, really? And And every time it comes out, like, let me tell you. I'll just say this Hugh Grant is simultaneously the best and the worst thing about the film (laughs) he's he's the best because he's the best because he's the only one who gives a damn yeah right he's really funny he's really funny but he reminds you of a better film and that's yeah. the problem. And you, and the movie made money, but I don't think it made money because it's good. I think it's one of those babysitter movies where people took yeah. and watched. But but again, that's we're not a Willy Wonka podcast. But you know what? If you saw the movie, you liked it. That's fine. There are worse movies than Willy Wonka. There are worse movies that are worth your ire. Willy yeah, Wonka is true. just it's just not interesting enough to talk yeah. about. It's better than Barbie. Yeah, better than Barbie. But um, but you know. Barbie's best picture nominee. So what do I know?
1: That's true. I don't know.
0: She was snubbed, even though, <laughs> even though she wasn't, even though she was nominated. She's getting. She was nominated for an Oscar as best picture. So there you go. And Greta yeah. Gerwig was nominated for an Oscar for best screenwriting. Even though she That's didn't, true. Even though she didn't really write the movie. Go figure. Hmm. Um, her husband helped write. it. no, Baumbach, Baumbach did write, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. Her partner. That's what we yeah. But anyway, uh, going back to the thing, I think it, I think it's safe to say. That I think it's—I don't know if it's praise or, or faint praise—but critics in 1994 said they don't make movies like Nobody's Fool anymore, which is always ironic yeah. because you just watched one. But whatever, <laughs> <laughs> you just watched something you said they don't make.
1: It, it, it's funny because yeah, the dramas are always the parts of Zeitgeist that I that I'm always the last to grab onto. It. From the you know the 80s and 90s and. You know, dramas from sixties and seventies get a little more praise as as historically significant. So you know, maybe I'll I'll check um, those out. But you know, these little dramas from the nineties and the eighties, like I re- I'm always like I rather watch something that like you know, uh, just throwing like a Back to the Future type of movie or like something like that, like or sci-fi, um, or or you know, uh, true romance or something something along those lines. Like these little you know sweet little dramas. Like I've never seen the English Patient. I've never um, seen uh, ordinary people, or you know, like movies like this. I've um, so I, it was cool being able to watch something that I would have probably never watched.
0: There is something to say, though. I, I will say, though, in the defense of the critics, um, there was a time when these films were pumped out like jam. Like there was yeah. a time in the eighties when, like the Terms of Endearment. That's type type of exactly stuff. what yeah. I was going to say. Like the Terms of Endearment, the Beaches. You know yeah. anything? Anything with Beth Midler, Beth Midler, except yeah. the comics Yeah, I've never seen. I've never yeah. seen any of those movies. Like yeah. there were, like even other, the director's other films. Like there was a time when this sort of film, like great, Fried Greed Tomatoes, when again, yeah. when you had you had films that were based on literary sources or close to it or approximations of which the, we had these adaptations that were had ready-made audiences today you would call it like the Oprah Winfrey book club movie or the Reese mm. Witherspoon book club oh, or yeah. whatever or the they, and they
1: would they would almost always suck unless no one would watch them unless they were the de- target demographic unless it had like a good letterbox score or something exactly. then or rotten tomato score then people would be like oh, okay I'll check it out so it's but yeah back then everyone like people watched it cuz it was in theaters and you know whatever and
0: and in 1994, though, I mean, we're talking 1993 was an epic year for cinema. It was game-changing. Oh, my
1: gosh. So was 94, though, by the way. Yeah, 94.
0: Like, we're talking about... Not, like, I mean,
1: not as good as 93, but yeah, it was like, good.
0: People criticize. People say, oh, movies are respectable. Yeah, you had Jurassic Park. You had The Fugitive. Yeah. You know, you had RoboCop 3. The Sandlot. I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, The Sandlot. Yeah, right. But movies like Nobody's Fool were kind of obsolete, and, and I think today... Yeah today in the age of streaming and everything you have a lot more options like the holdovers like the holdovers even though it's not made for best picture it was never in like t- three thousand theater. theaters it was always specialty theaters yeah. like i'm surprised i saw it in a the theater it was never going to make a hundred million dollars it's just not that type of film and i think if you set the expectations for these indie films that are quaint and gentle and you know I don't want to say the word gormless, but if they're anodyne, like they are not going to go they're not going to give you a heart attack with action. You know, you're you know, you're not going to you don't yeah. need to see the holdover as an IMAX, you know. Yeah, and in
1: and, and, and the same in the same token, uh, released the same year as Nobody's Fool, like it's not going to uh, be as memorable as Forrest Gump, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Where it's a movie that's not necessarily uh, Jurassic Park, but if, but by the way, the least.
0: by the way, um, even though Dr- even though Forrest Gump, which you know was the biggest blockbuster of the year, yeah. which was the you know the most winning movie at all the things, which a movie that's maligned now because it it people wrongly think it stole something from pulp fiction. Um that well. actually has a lot in common with Nobody's Fool. Like it, that was Robert yeah. Zemeckis' gift, I think. He could make a hugely budgeted special effects extravaganza feel intimate.
1: Yeah. And by I the love, way, I love Forrest Gump. Yeah,
0: I do. I love Forrest Gump too. I could I like Forrest Gump better than Nobody's Fool and The Holdovers. Yeah. Can I say that? Yeah. Like I like it as a movie Same better. Game. It is it is, it's
1: more rewatchable, too, I think.
0: Yeah, it's. I think it holds up... In fact, I prefer it today, still, to Pulp Fiction.
1: Oh, like, my gosh, yeah. And, I don't even think Pulp Fiction is Tarantino's I like fi- I like third, Pulp Fiction. Be, third or fourth best movie. By the way, no, I, it's I a like good Pulp movie. Fiction.
0: Yes, I like it. I don't feel yeah. they're in competition, but yeah. Forrest Gump, to me... like if Again, if I could read... I'm not going to read Roger Ebert's review, but I remember one line from that review. It, it sung to me. It, it spoke to me. It said... This is a magical film, a magical movie, mm-hmm. and it is. This is this is why you see movies. You see movies yeah. to see magic, and I think to, like I can't imagine anybody but Tom uh, Tom Cruise. He, that'd be that'd be a very different <laughs> film. I can't imagine anybody but Tom Hanks in that role. Anybody, yeah. And the music and the direction and the in the effects and you know Robert Wright Penn, and everybody. Everything's perfect. I love Sally Field. You like her. You really like her. Yeah. Like everything is is great. I love it and. But that being said, I like nobody's fool too, and I like the holdovers and they're not in competition. Mhm. Right? Although technically, I guess uh, they were because I think uh, Paul Newman was nominated for best actor, but but um, Tom Hanks got uh, Tom Hanks got it for 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 Scump. So it's kind of hard to argue. He was nominated for this? Yeah. Tom Yeah, Paul oh. Newman was nominated for best actor.
1: I missed that in my research.
0: Yeah, but it's okay. like it's like in, in any other year, right?
1: Yeah, he he uh, also Tom Hanks. That was his back to back too. He won for Philadelphia the year before.
0: Yep, and you know what? They had a they had a blood feud until Road to Perdition. I'm just kidding. Like he stole my yeah. Oscar. I'm gonna, now I'm gonna kill you. That was the whole plot of Road to Perdition. He wanted revenge on Tom Hanks for stealing the, his for Oscar.
1: the Oscars. Yeah.
0: But have you seen that movie? You haven't seen Road to I, Perdition.
1: I've, never, I've not seen Road to Perdition. There's a lot of gaps I have in the probably between like. Nine, like basically, like the early '90s to I'll, like the mid 2000s.
0: I'll say this. I'll say this about Road to Perdition. Gorgeous film, right? Sam Mendes mm-hmm. directed it. Gorgeous film. Yeah. Um, acted perfectly. Soundtrack amazing, right? Mm-hmm. And it was the first movie that made me realize Jude Law was a good actor. Like okay. that. That was the beginning of his <laughs> phasing out of being adorable. Like mm-hmm. like instead of being impossibly handsome. Like not too many premature, not too many prematurely balding men are considered hot. Yeah. But Jude Law was like he, that, and
1: he's due for a comeback too. By the way, let's say I, like I, a good like a good
0: one. Like he's been in like the fantastic.
1: Oh, he's great. No, whatever. he's he's great. Um, but like he, I think he's gonna have like a Hugh Grant. You know how Hugh Grant's been coming back the oh, last yeah. couple of years. Hugh I Gra- think Jude Law is gonna have a good comeback here.
0: Hugh, Hugh Grant is the template for these guys, and I'll tell you why. Yeah, you're insanely handsome. And yeah. people use that against you, like they yeah. said. You well, know, you know, even if you're good in movies like Four Weddings and a Funeral and yeah. About a Boy, you're just too damn handsome. But it's, like get, it's the Colin Farrell? Is the
1: Colin Farrell? That's though. what I was
0: going to say. Colin yeah. Farrell. Like when Carl, these guys get a little older, a few more wrinkles, and then it turns out that these handsome men are actually really good character actors. Like, yeah. like I love Brad. I, I love Brad Pitt sometimes too, but Brad Pitt is not a yeah. character actor. He, no. he tried i mean he he's done some good things like he's tried but it's he struggles
1: yeah he, he, he's the most recognizable name in hollywood i mean brad pitt you can't you can't do a character. i mean yeah he was good in uh lock stock or, or not snatch lock, uh snatch my bad yeah he was good um, in 12 monkeys he's good in snatch yeah 12 monkeys um yeah, he's got some good stuff i mean you know, like you know yeah. film and louise but uh yeah
0: no, he's I like Brad Pitt. yeah, he uh, Brad Pitt's okay. He's he again. He's I hate to say he's kind of like Tom Cruise. Like Tom Cruise is at some point, Tom Cruise will stop doing action movies because either he will die in space uh-huh. or he will become disfigured and he'll have to, he'll be like Val Kilmer was a little bit. Like he can't do it anymore. But Tom Cruise yeah. is sixty years old. He's the same age, like I said, as Paul Newman was, <laughs> where Tom yeah, where he plays a grandfather.
1: But here's the thing, yeah. Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt, if, if if neither of them were handsome, they would have never gotten the opportunity to be in good movies where I think Paul Newman had some actual mm. talent early on. Same with, I think, Steve McQueen. Like these so Back then, I think, it was a little different. But, yeah.
0: Yeah. I, 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 I love Paul Newman. Just just imagine this for a second. Just imagine this for one second. Imagine Tom Cruise in the Paul Giamatti role in The Holdovers. and oh, yet yikes. And yet nobody would acknowledge the handsomeness. Yeah. Let's say – you're told that he's like it's one of those Aaron. Eck- Remember the movie uh, with Aaron Eckhart where he played the Frankenstein. I think where
1: yeah, like, uh, yeah,
0: where High he's Frankenstein. Yeah, where he's like got a, like some some beauty mark sketches and he's yeah. supposed to be hideous. And you're like, no, that just makes him more handsome. Like, yeah. like just imagine watching a movie, watching the holdovers with Tom Cruise, where you're supposed to believe he looks like Paul Giamatti, and no one acknowledges yeah. it. Like, ooh, get away from me, old man. Like, yeah. just imagine that. It's not possible. Same, yeah. with, same with Paul Newman. You can't do it. He's more no. than just salad dressing, Ethan.
1: Yeah, he's great. He yeah. does
0: kitty litter. Like, it's true. By the way, Paul Newman stuff. The Newman's Own. That's everywhere. That's crazy. Yeah,
1: and it's a hundred. It's a hundred percent of the profits go to charity. I think.
0: Yeah, like after after I think after yeah, net yeah. or gross
1: after. Nia. Yeah.
0: But it's like I looked. At, I actually looked them up. They donated like hundreds of millions of dollars, and that's oh yeah, they're great. Yeah, that's that's more than Bill Gates ever gave to charity. But I'll. Oh yeah. But I'll say this. uh, I'll say this. um, One more thing about Paul Newman, who I love to death. I've always liked Paul Newman. um, If you've listened this far, discover his filmography. You'll be very pleased. You'll be very pleased. I will say one thing though. Disney did him dirty. Um, As much as I like the first Cars movie, I do. Mm -hmm. I don't like the second movie, and I I think the third one. Uh, may be the worst Pixar film of it's
1: all. It's 100% the worst Pixar Yeah. It's well, worse than The Good Dinosaur. It's worse than Turning Red. It's, it's the worst it's, Pixar film. It's,
0: it's bad on a subliminal level. Yeah, and, yeah, it's
1: not even kind of good. Like, and, it's
0: so bad. And one of the worst things they do is they steal outtakes from the first Cars Oh, to yeah. resurrect, and they actually credit Paul Newman, even though he had nothing to do with it.
1: Oh, jeez, don't put his name on there. Yeah,
0: and like I said, the first Cars I like. I actually will defend it. I actually like, even yeah, though it's, it's even good though it's, even though it's a ripoff of Doc Hollywood, I like it.
1: Yeah, and even though it's not a kids' movie.
0: No, it's it's literally got cars flashing their tauntauns. Yeah. Do you have you seen it? You know seen what I'm yeah. talking about? Yeah. Cars. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You no, know, I mean, like you've seen the scene when they, yeah, when they flash their their titis. Wait. Oh, yeah. in
1: like the op- is it like the opening when he's like racing or something like well, that? Well,
0: There's a scene when these two like let's just say female cars come up to the like, yeah. Queen and they start their headlights start going off. They're literally right, flashing. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. I saw you did it last year. That's why you got fired. <laughs> but um yeah, you're into auto 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 gynophobia. He
1: didn't get he didn't get fired, he resigned.
0: Whatever the case is. You know, we've still never heard anything about that. I, I refuse to be upset. Yeah. But um but anyway, going back to it. <clears throat> I think what I think ultimately what these films both have in common is they're both uh, acting centerpieces for their lead their leading men. Um, their storytelling is gentle and reserved, and there is something to be said about nostalgic filmmaking. Uh, and I think both I think I think you'd agree that I think the '70s is the target here for both of these movies, like the '70s yeah. style filmmaking, which is more reserved, more cinemat uh, not cinematographer. I can't talk. Uh, c- what what would be like a verbing? cinematic, cinematic, but like cinematographatic
1: like where, photographic. Maybe. Yeah,
0: where like the cinematographer yeah. does a lot of the heavy lifting and finding yeah. beautiful moments.
1: Yeah, like very much like like Coppola esque, like
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, slow burn, almost like a slow burn, but there's nothing burning. Yeah.
0: And i i made the same I made the same comment about the Super Mario Brothers movie when we talked about it that. I think story kind of takes a backseat to experience. Like, like if yeah. you, like if you're writing, like if you're at Disneyland and you're riding the Indiana Jones ride, like you're not getting the story of the movie, but you're trading it for experience. And yeah, I, the
1: Mario movie was great for its like how, what you were going through when you were watching it. Yeah, people, less than the story.
0: Yeah, but I love the people who commented that its story was was silly and but like okay. All right, yeah, and it didn't have any but was, Vietnam it's scenes, fun, though. Yeah, Who cares? It's fun. yeah. <laughs> and then the Fire Village game, But with yeah. the Fire Nation. But but I'll say this: um, I do enjoy both films. I wouldn't say either one is my top ten favorite anything, but mm-hmm. I, but every time I watch um, Nobody's Floor, even look at the poster, God, I feel like a, I feel like I'm in love. But when I look at it and I think of Paul Newman's portrayal of this character, I realize. This is why I like film. I enjoy watching this. I get a feeling that's not nostalgic. I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but it's not nostalgic, Ethan. It's sort of, it's sort of like, it's sort of like your favorite dish that your mom used to make. Like it's simple, comfort food. It's comfort food, but it's exactly what you want. Like you don't want a four-course dinner. You don't want to go out on night in town. Sometimes you just want apple pie, or you want a sandwich. Because it's simple and it's it makes you feel good, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that.
1: No, yeah, no, there's not in. Uh, but yeah, both movies they look great. They're beautiful. Um, again, comfort food I think is like a really good uh, analogy because um, yeah, like you wouldn't throw you wouldn't throw on uh, nobody's fool just because you you uh, want to be wildly entertained. <laughs> um, no. It's not gonna excite you it's not gonna excite your senses other than maybe sight. Um but it's it's great. Oh and oh we didn't even talk about Howard Shore's uh score. I I was humming it like for the next day after I watched the movie for no uh nobody's nobody's pool. I,
0: I only have one issue with that. The score is great by the way. Howard Shore's is great. Is that yeah. sometimes especially with these older films like the Oscar Bait films, they'd always sometimes mix do the mix a little where like that's why it's so hard to clip this film. Because the dialogue is is sometimes mixed with the score. And yeah, it's you, a you, little too heavy. Yeah. yeah, it's like you're you're being manipulated a little bit. Yeah. And, it's and like I a get Full
1: House it. episode.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like I, and you know what? Sometimes I'm into that. Sometimes I'm yeah. into it, and sometimes I'm not into it. But if I tried to clip it, it would just be all sound. It yeah. Would, it would be very hard. Like you wouldn't. It's. I'm not saying it's hard to hear the dialogue, but in the context of the film, it works.
1: But yeah, yeah I, no. It, yeah, exactly. And um, I think if anything could compare these two movies, Howard Hawks once said that a good movie, a great movie had three good scenes and no bad scenes. Mm-hmm. And I think both of these movies do that um, really well and are kind of exemplify that quote. Um, no, three, three goods, three really good scenes at least and no bad scenes. Um, and yeah, I think that's, I, I thought about that when I was watching both of these movies because um I think you're in in nobody's fool. you remove the sweeping score the canvas style like the courier and ives uh imagery and even like um uh yeah even even like just just all of the imagery essentially and it's still a good movie because the writing's good the yeah. acting's good and and the scenes are just it's a string of good scenes and the same with the holdovers you remove all that stuff, and it's still a good movie.
0: I agree. And, um, and I also think, final thought for me, is that it's, it is one of those films where I could see with simple tweaking how it could have been vastly different, vastly in the hands of another filmmaker. Yeah. And, um, and maybe we have seen those movies. We've seen those other versions play out elsewhere, but they're so forgettable we're not talking about them. So cause yeah. I, I wouldn't say that either film presents like some revolutionary take on a storytelling or anything, but that's OK. No, yeah. Yeah. So f- anyway, I think this might be a good time to wrap up. So final thoughts or, or have we made our final thoughts? I think we made them. I think we did. So I want to thank Watch everybody. Howard Hawks movies. Watch Howard Hawks movies. Watch uh, Hal Ashby movies, too, by the way. Oh, and Hal. Yeah. Hal Ashby, too. Yeah. And watch uh, and watch pretty much everything that... uh. Everything that was made by Robert Benton, especially Kramer vs. Kramer. That movie gets a lot of flack. It's gorgeous. It's a lot of I want to say it's fun. It's very good. Dustin Hoffman's yeah. fantastic. And so is Meryl Streep. Yeah. So, I got to watch it. Yeah. You've never seen it, though. That's crazy. That's yeah. insane. We're going to pause this right now while Ethan watches it. No, I'm just kidding. So, but <laughs> that I want to thank everybody for listening this far. I know it's these are not the most groundbreaking of films, and they're not good. The, the SEO for this is going to be non existent. But we have been, we've been talking about 1994's Nobody's Fool and 2023's The Holdover. is a very interesting Oscar favorite this year, I would say. Uh, we'll see how that pans out. Uh, once again, I want to thank my special co-host who's always there for me talking about good stuff, Ethan Bram Ethan, thank you once again. Thank you. Thank you, guys. And we will see everybody next time. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks for listening to the Pop Zara Podcast. Remember to like, follow, share, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app or service.